With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Welcome back to Heard Tell. We were talking about ricotta cookies. That's why we're both smiling. That's Sarah Montabano back on the show again, getting to be a favorite because she always brings good information. How are you, ma'am? Great to have you back. I'm doing well. How about yourself? No, same as last time. Uh, We are going to talk a little education. She's with the Alaska Policy Forum, also a Young Voices contributor, good friend of the program. She goes all the way back to the radio days. I had her on the radio before we were ever doing her tell. So you're one of the OGs around here. How's that feel? (laughs) It feels good. Yeah, I remember fondly a compliment your mother gave me. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, mom's probably listening. Hi, mom, because we're going to talk education today. My parents, let's just start right there. My parents were both career educators, so I, I... I take these kind of things seriously. Um, and when the pandemic happened, I was the primary stay-at-home parent for my two youngest kids because our school district shut down and they stayed shut down. There was none of this back and forth. They kept they kept that puppy down for 13, 14 months, whatever it was. You've got some data now. This is really shocking numbers on what we did to our kids educationally for the COVID pandemic. Absolutely. Um, First of all, these numbers came out last week in the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Um, That was administered in 2022, earlier in January through March. Um, And so we're measuring three years of decline through a lot of that. Um, The most recent test was in 2019. Uh, So, you know, 2020, 2021, a lot of schools were still closed. Um, And it's really uh, remarkable how poorly states did in mathematics especially, but also reading, no states improved over this time span. It's really a question of did they manage to keep their ground or did they decline uh, a lot? (laughs) And they declined a lot. I'm just looking over some of these preliminary numbers. I don't even, honest to God, I don't even know where to really start with. They're talking (laughs) about kids losing years. Yes. Not semesters, not years. The average fourth grade math gains they basically lost two years of education. Yeah. Yes, eighth absolutely. Grade student, eighth grade students lost almost the equivalent of two years in mm-hmm. English scores. Like, I'm just, I don't even know where to start with this data set. I'm, I mean, you're compiling it. You sent me some of it. I was doing my prep. Like, I don't even know where to start because just everywhere you look, it's bad. It really is. There's a, a, my area of expertise is Alaska, and I've been living and breathing this data since last week when I came out. And at least in Alaska, charter schools really the really bright point where charter schools were outperforming uh, the traditional public schools, and you know, providing an outlet for students that are really struggling uh, and in helping them advance through that. They did decrease by a few points, at least in Alaska, uh, since 2019, but they are overall holding way, way above where um, traditional public schools are. Um, and, and it's really remarkable that nationally, fourth grade math gains are back to where they were since in, in 2005. I mean, we've wiped out 15 years of progress there. And, you know, reading the same story, eighth grade reading, um, back down to 1998, uh, pretty much when these tests were inaugurated. Um, so it's it's really remarkable um, what having 
all of this online learning, these school closures, not having a teacher around, uh, maybe parents aren't as involved in in uh, the pandemic age. There's there's a lot of people theorizing about what caused this, um, but it's all pandemic related. Yes, yeah, Sarah Montalbano joining us. Let's just get into it, and we're just going to have to go there because there's no way around this. It's the remote learning that's what changed everything. Now here, there, but there's. It's too simplistic to say this is all remote learning's fault because no, it's not because there is a good portion of children in this country and a vast portion of college students that learn online just fine. Thank you very much. Now, I understand yes. kindergartners and primary, it's a little different. Let's be adults. Mm -hmm. But in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with remote learning. So let's just put that on the table. Yeah, We're online learning should always be an option. You know, a lot of kids, it works really well. It was being thrown into this so suddenly um, that really, really hurt students um in you know the spring of 2020 when this all started happening let's start with that let's just go through it yeah there was clearly most of these schools did not have a plan on how to do remote learning they were doing it on the fly i know for mm -hmm. a fact because i sat there and helped my children do it it got to the point where i would literally tell them like whatever they do monday don't worry about it because tuesday it's going to change because everybody's going to call and complain and they'll change it and that's exactly what happened yep. they were not prepared they didn't know what they were doing. It was scattershot once they did it. And then once they started doing it, they didn't, there was a lot of not adapting. Mm -hmm. Before I just bash everybody for that part of it, let's all be real clear here. I understand nobody saw the pandemic coming. I understand that it was something nobody really anticipated that we were going to shut the entire school system down basically nationwide. Even still, I believe crisis reveals things. I think this showed some real problems in the education system as far as flexibility and frankly, as far as prioritizing learning other other things, because when you went online and you just had to do the learning without all the other stuff, there's a bunch of people who just couldn't do it. Let's just call it what it was. Oh, that's absolutely the truth. I mean, I think mathematics showed a lot of really painful decreases in uh, proficiency nationwide, mostly because mathematics is really difficult to teach online and to do well um, and that this practice that has to happen at home to hone your mathematics skills uh, just wasn't happening as much whereas reading is something that you know hopefully if you if you've got parents that are involved um, you know you're learning some reading skills outside of the classroom um, and, and it just it, the pandemic really revealed that um, the public education system isn't working well for a lot of students, um, not just students that were unhappy online, but thriving in a regular public school. Uh, but it's just giving a lot of students the opportunity to tune out. And, and it's not an engaging education for them uh, in, in public schools or online. Um, so that's what I think we saw is a lot of school choice programs offered a way out um, for a lot of students during the pandemic um, to pick something that really works for them and their families. Right. And you mentioned school choice. So I want to go here because I'm a fan. Look, my kids have gone to both public and private school. I went to both public and private school. My two youngest are actually in public school now. But I believe in school choice. Not everybody has school choice. There's places where there mm -hmm. is no other option. They only have the public school Sorry. option. So I think it's really important we point out here that we also found out you can't just say, OK, school choice is going to fix everything because it can't. And I've seen this on the right and we need to discuss that you can't just abandon the public schools because that's the only option for a lot of people. And I think too many people wrote that off. I think there's a lot of learning here to do of like, OK, I know we all have our favorites politically and policy wise and things that we really believe in. Hey, this policy is really going to work. We also got to understand we got a diverse country and those policies doesn't work everywhere. Is it fair to take that lesson away from this as well? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the lessons I draw from this data, at least, is that um, states with really strong public school early literacy, you know, advances programs um, that I've had this for a long time, their public schools are doing really, really well despite this, um, and that it's not so much whether it is being online that is the cause, but that the teaching methods that we're, you know, forcing students through in traditional public schools maybe aren't working so well um, in, in any case. Um, so Florida really did well. Um, Mississippi really did well. They have uh, strong early literacy programs. Um, and in places like that, uh, you know, you you obviously can't abandon public schools. That's not a good choice for a lot of people. And people shouldn't have to abandon public schools in order to get a good education for their children. Um, so that's one thing I'd like to see is see more states adopt these kind of reforms that'll actually, you know, teach students how to read before fourth grade and things like that. Yeah, Sarah Montalbano joining us. There's a thread there that we have to touch on because, look, I believe that when you're talking about really tough policy stuff, you got to be practical, too. Absolutely. Florida, Alabama, those are those are warm weather states. Those are southern states. <laughs> it's just a fact. Part of this COVID thing, we know the winters were harder than the summers were. That's when you had mm -hmm. spikes. That's when you had trouble. You have kids basically stuck inside for longer periods of time. When you take away school and they go to the home environment, and especially when you have seasonal differences and you have weather differences and there's other data here that you're pointing out in this data set, you start seeing economic differences mm -hmm. and things like this. I really think we need to have a long, hard conversation about how one size fits all education is just not going to work because you're seeing it here. Cold weather states, they perform differently than warm weather states. Higher income brackets, well, they can hire tutors. They have probably better Wi-Fi. Like, look, they have what? Look, West Virginia, they had to ride around in buses and set up Wi-Fi stations because nobody has Wi-Fi because there's no broadband in Watts Swaps. You can go 20 minutes out of a state capital in the United States of America and there's no broadband. Like, that's just a fact wow. of life in West Virginia. I, Alaska, there's wide stretches. We've where got there's, that too. <laughs> there's not even cell service, right? Mm -hmm. We've got to realize there's diversity issues here and quit with this one-size-fits-all, throw-money-at-it mindset I really take that away from that data says like all these divides are because you try to push a one size fits all. And then this is all the stuff that goes through the cracks. Absolutely. I mean, broadband was such a huge issue in Alaska. And that was, I think, one of the things that this pandemic money was uh, trying to fix is establishing enough Wi-Fi for students to be able to do any of this learning. But you can just really see this this one size fit all is not working. We're seeing that obviously um, higher performers are losing less, uh, lower performers that are you know, already on the margins of not being able to do some of these skills, they're, they're dropping a lot and maybe they need more intensive intervention than the public school system can give them. Um, and that's, that's, it's absolutely the lesson to draw from this data is that a lot of states have really different situations um, and that legislation and policy need to be crafted to those situations. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Paramount Devon joining us. You talked about the early literacy. I want to come back to that again. Here's why, because we know we spend more money on education in America per capita than just about anybody else, and we're getting less for the money. That's just the fact. Yes. Throwing money at education does not improve education. We've got all the data in the world. Let's all be grownups. Mm-hmm. However, you talked about those early literacy programs. There is data that those have an effect. Those are expensive, though. So yes. where do we start having the conversation of, yes, we're spending tons of money. There are some things in here that cost money that are worth the money to spend. It sure looks like from the data spe- set, especially that fourth grade and under, and then that fourth and fifth and sixth, that's kind of the tipping point where you get into the more advanced studies. And if you don't have the reading skills, you're not going to pick them up then because then you just get tidal waved with everything else, right? Fourth grade level and down literacy. We should probably just say, we know it's expensive, but we got the data. That's where we fire hose the money. Is that what you're seeing? That's absolutely what I see. It's so worth it to have these early literacy programs. And by the time that the NAEP exam is testing fourth graders, you know, students by third grade should be able to read because up into fourth grade, you're not uh, learning to read. You're reading to, to learn other materials in mathematics, history, social studies, um, any of these other fields. Um, And so, you know, students at that stage start falling farther and farther behind. And and really, you know, a lot of assessments begin at third grade when you should be doing little check-ins throughout the year. And maybe that's expensive, but it is worth it to catch this early uh, and to be able to actually direct, you know, a lot of these programs have early literacy coaches that'll go to schools and train teachers in the science of reading. Um, There's, you know, intensive interventions that are expensive, but important for these schools that are really struggling. Um, So I think that's really where the bang for your buck comes from in education spending. Um, What we see a lot of is just growth in administrative and support staff, which are important, but not necessarily at the rates that they have been growing. Um, And so if you need to find the money somewhere, start looking there first. Yes, Sarah Montebano. I'm going to I'm going to rant for just a second, but it's needed. Please do that administrative and support staff level. You can look at any chart you want to. And it's basically a hockey stick graph. The amount, Mm -hmm. the explosion and where all the money's going. It's not in classroom teachers. It's a reason why they take all that money. But I got to spend more and more every year on getting Kleenexes in the classroom and pencils. Right. It's all Mm -hmm. going to this administration level. It's going to those folks that never darken the door of a classroom. I've got, I'm, this is real talk on this show, folks. Maybe this segment ain't for you. Let's just talk real. I got visceral anger at the fact we've spent so much money on those folks. And when COVID hit, no offense to them. And I don't mean them personally as human beings, their positions were worthless because now you have an in-classroom teacher in front of a camera trying to teach students. 
-hmm. those people are nowhere to be found. And they're making sometimes double what that in-classroom teacher is doing. Like, this is so broken and so backwards. I don't even know where to really start with that. But I know where the money's going. It's going to things that are not in the classroom. And the data in the classroom is showing that it's not going to the things in the classroom. Absolutely. I'm going to show you an article after. I'm going to send you this link. Uh, but the Reason Foundation did a study of where education funding and revenue has gone since 2002 up till 2020 um, in supports services. It are have gone up, you know, in Alaska, support services are up 50% since 2002 after adjusting for inflation. So you can't say, well, inflation's whittling this away. Um, and when you start breaking it down into actual uh, by what they're doing, uh, you're seeing, you know, school administration and, you know, general administration going up a lot. Um, it's, it's really remarkable how this has happened. And in, you know, Alaska, we are pretty notorious for having really expensive per pupil education next to really, really bad outcomes. In this NAEP results, Alaska, you know, fourth grade reading, we're down second to last nationwide ahead of only New Mexico. Um, and we're spending, you know, $18,000 per student. And, you know, a lot of it's going towards administration and, you know, buildings and, and things that are, you know, necessary, but not in the levels that we are funding them. Yeah, Sarah Montabano. I'll talk about my home state, who I love so much. You send me the data set on it. West Virginia has 78% basic or below basic mm -hmm. for fourth grade. We've always, West, I'm talking about West Virginia, we've always been at the bottom of every education. We're on the bottom of every list, just about, but we've always been on the bottom of it. Look, my parents were both West Virginia school teachers career-wise until they retired. My daughter's in college to be a teacher. She's probably going to be a teacher in West Virginia right now. What do you do with a state that's mostly rural, obviously poor, losing population. They're going to have trouble. You know, the, you're not going to have money to throw at the problem there. Mm -hmm. So now what do you do? Because when you see a number that that, you know, nationally, you're talking about two thirds and they're above that 78 basic or below lacking skills, no mastery of simple tasks like inference. Let's go back to what you just said. There's a tipping point in school education. I've heard my dad talk about this for years where you, they stop teaching you how to learn, and then it's just adapt to what we're teaching you so you learn it. And that lack of skill set is where you just start burying people and being unable to learn, not just for a grade or two, but for a lifetime. What do we do to fix that? Oh, that's a big question. Uh, I wish examples. I had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Alaska's in the same boat with that. We've got 76% of fourth graders can't you know, do these basic reading tasks or only show a little bit of mastery. Three out of every, every four students don't know how to read. And that's that's really remarkable. It's difficult in a rural state, especially with um, going online for COVID. There was a lot of chronic absenteeism, and we were talking about this before we got on the air. Um, but there's, you know, chronic absenteeism has always been an issue in Alaska, but it really spiked due to the pandemic. Um, so the first thing is trying to get you know, children's butts back in their chairs in the classroom. Um, and then so much of this is coming down to teaching techniques. Um, you know, if you're trying to teach reading with the whole language method where you're looking at a word and guessing from pictures and, and all these different things, you know, you're not going to learn to read as well as if you start sounding it out and you, you're using phonics. Um, and so that's where these early literacy programs come in for, uh, you know, public school systems. And then the last thing I would say is West Virginia has opened up 
2022 this year, uh, the HOPE Scholarship Program, which is an education savings account, um, opening more school choice options like that for students will help them really try to escape these really failing schools um, and, and teachers who either don't care or aren't uh, putting in the necessary work to get them where they are. Um, and so, you know, expanding school choice options, I think, should be an important key to that, but it's not going to solve the problem entirely. Sarah Monteblano joining us. You mentioned the teachers, so let's take up for the teachers because, again, I, I think what happened in the pandemic for the most – and you had some bad teachers. You always have a few bad ones. I'm talking about the majority of the most of them. I think the teachers really got screwed because I think the administrative level wanted to put all the blame on them for the problems. Mm -hmm. They're getting it from the parents. They're in a situation they've never planned to be. I think the teachers got it on all sides, to be they fair did. to the teachers. Really we've got, and we've got the stats now leaving in droves. They're having a hard time recruiting teachers. We can't find enough teachers just about anywhere right now. How do we solve that problem? Because again, just throwing money at it ain't, ain't look, I know it, look, every, no politician is going to come out and say teachers make good, a good living. It's not a bad living when, you know, you work nine, 10 months out of the year, get weekends and holidays. Let's you're doing okay. I agree. You may be a little underpaid depending on your location. It's not just a pay thing. How do we get that profession, that career path? That used to be a revered thing. It no longer mm -hmm. is. Some of that's cultural. What do we do about this teacher shortage? Because you and me can, and whoever, mm -hmm. we can talk policy all day long. If we don't have enough teachers and teachers in the classroom to implement policy, it ain't going to matter. Huge question, but there's a few parts I want to touch on. Uh, one of the things I personally think would help a lot is making it easier to become a teacher and not saying we're lowering standards, but you know, I'm saying, you know, look, I got a bachelor's in computer science. Why can't I just go take the teacher licensure exam to go be an AP's computer science teacher? Uh, why, why do I have to go back to college to get teaching degrees, which, you know, are a large part um, politically is saturated with certain uh, teaching methods and stuff like that. Why do I have to go back, you know, if if I'm an expert in my field uh, to get that? So reforming teacher licensure to make it easier for also cultural and community leaders to do some teaching in schools. That's one thing uh, we'd like to see more of in Alaska. It's it, That's a huge part uh, to it. Don't make teachers, potential teachers go back to college because a lot of people are just going to say, no, no, that's not worth it. Um, and, and it's not worth it also because of, you know, how teachers are treated. And I think administrators really threw teachers under the bus in a lot of ways um, during this pandemic. And they were also the most visible part. You know, you're not watching administrators give online lessons to your kids. You're watching the teacher. Um, and so that's that's a huge thing to make teaching a respectable profession. And it doesn't need to be necessarily more high paying than it is. Um, this is a little wonkish but I'd like to mention it anyway. Um, 
reforming the way teachers' pensions work so that they are more portable between districts and jobs would help a lot for teachers to not feel like, well, if I leave this district, my pensions, you know, back down to a really low level, I'm being penalized for movement this way. Um, and that would help bring in teachers from other states um, to have that. And then also recognizing teacher licenses from other states uh, would help a great deal. Yeah, Sarah Montalbano joining us. I, I found this out firsthand because I went to find out what I needed to do to substitute teach when I first left the military. Mm-hmm. You only needed 30-some hours to get a substitute teaching. Absolutely. But there was people with master's degrees, and one guy I know that was actually a doctor who did a text proxy with me. He's like, no, I just have a substitute licensure because I don't want to fool with it. He's a doctor. Yeah. He's like, no. Why is he not qualified to teach but yeah, high school he, biology? He's like, I don't want, he's like, I don't want to fool with it, so I just get a substitute and I help out when I want to. And we were doing a test proctor thing, which you didn't even need that. We were just, you know, watching sixth graders take a test for their standardized testing, stuff like this. Let's go back big picture for a second, because this is going to come off harsh, but I want to go there because it's important. What did the pandemic see? I think crisis reveals things. I think crisis tells you the truth because it strips away all the nonsense. So if we look at the pandemic and we look at people's actions, not their words, I think a lot of people told us exactly what kind of education system we had. And I think and I've talked to my children who went through this, who very much struggled. They found out that they were cogs in a wheel. That's how they felt. Absolutely. That's a cultural thing that's not going to change. I think the teachers feel like they got screwed on all sides, and I think they've got a legitimate beef there. Mm-hmm. I think what we found out in the United States of America in 2022, 2021, 2020, we've said our schools are about education, but our actions and the way we conducted ourselves during the pandemic said it's not about education. It's a jobs program and a daycare center. And that's how we funded it. And that's how we treat it. And that's what we expect from it. And that's why we acted the way we acted. If I went to a court of law, I think I can prove that. I don't think I can prove that we're all about education after this. Do you disagree? I mean, that's my opinion. What do you think? Because that's what I drew is like, we we revealed what we really thought about education in America. Absolutely. Education right now does not teach students uh, how to be critical thinkers, how to be creative, um, things like that. It's really, you know, I, I, I was great at school. I enjoyed my time in public schools, but it's not a place for students that are really looking to create these like next century jobs and innovations and things like that. Um, you know, states need to start thinking about um, re- reforming their their programs to actually put some emphasis on this. Um, and, and to really bring back rigor, too, is, is a huge part of it. I mean, I look at you know, college entrance, uh, entrance exams from 1920 or 30, and there's not a single question on there I could answer. And I consider myself fairly well educated. Um, and so that's that's something I, I see a, a huge problem with is just it's not rigorous. It is being treated like a daycare center. And then, you know, when you say, well, we're not going to have the daycare center, we're going to make you guys uh, do this daycare center and then we're going to still try and teach. I, it's really no wonder that scores dropped so much. Yeah. And again, let's just call it what it is, because back then the test scores didn't determine your funding. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what that's where the the paradigm really shifted. But we'll get into that some other time. Sarah Montabano, this is going to be a generational problem, so it's going to be a generational fix. We're going to be talking about this a lot, but I appreciate you. Hey, this is one of those you went to me. It's like, hey, we need to talk about this. So I appreciate it. I hey, made my show prep easy. This is something we're going to be talking about a long. Look, I've, I and again, this is personal because I see this in my own kids. 
yeah. where, you know, my own, my youngest daughter is like, why should I study? They're not allowed to fail us. And they weren't because yep. in the state of North Carolina, it got out. Somebody leaked it that, you know, they're scaling all the zeros to 50. So everybody passes. Mm -hmm. The kids are smart. They know that. And she's, you know, this is an integrity problem. I got a parent out of her, but she wasn't wrong. She's like, why should I study? They're not allowed to fail us. Mm -hmm. The kids are smart. They, they know what we did to them. And Absolutely. we're going to have ramifications for a generation on dealing with what we did to these kids mm -hmm. during COVID. Even I, and I understand there's a pandemic. I look, I'll give you the first couple of weeks. Nobody knew what was going on. I get it. But we're going to be reckoning with this for a very long time. I'll give you the last word because I've been talking a lot here. But when you looked at this data set and you looked over, just what do you take away as to what we need to do now looking forward? What's the next thing to look at? What's the next thing to advocate for, do you think? Big question. Three parts. Um, first of all, we can't let this happen again, um, especially not to the same cohort of kids that are still going through, but especially um, especially those kids. But it just it, we cannot either be so unprepared for an online transition or do it at all, because I think there's a lot of kids that just cannot or will not learn uh, through a screen. Um, especially younger kids. I mean, you're asking them to sit down in front of a screen for hours and that's, that's just not going to happen. Um, the biggest thing to improve public schools are these sort of literacy improvement programs. Um, right now we need to catch up and that's going to be really stressful for, you know, older kids who have been living with these, um, living at this level of, of proficiency for a while now. Um, but that's something that in order for colleges to be ready, for trade schools to be ready, you know, students need to learn how to read and have bas basic math skills. Um, so there needs to be some substantial remedial time on that. Um, and then finally, we need to continue to improve school choice options nationally. Um, states have control over these. Um, so, you know, get as much legislation introduced as you can while parents are still really dissatisfied and, and just try to improve this learning loss however you can. Students that learn best elsewhere should try to make that jump, um, you know, as soon as possible or at least make incremental changes like hiring a tutor, or taking some classes at a different school. Hey, all those non-certified teachers, you put a tutoring program together, that might be something you want, somebody might want to look into. That's free. I'm not even going to charge you for that one. Just check it out. <laughs> Sarah Montabano, she's one of our favorites. Um, we're going to keep having you back on a host of topics because you're great at this. We appreciate you. But until we get you back, let folks know where they can follow you, where they can keep up with you and what you got going on. You will be able to find my upcoming report on www.alaskapolicyforum.org. Uh, that's where I do all my education work uh, in Alaska. You can also find me on my Young Voices talent page and on Twitter at Sarah Montalbano, and the O is a zero. Yep, it's a, which messes me up every single time I do it, quite <laughs> frankly. But, uh, Sarah Montalbano, nah, it's not your fault. Hey, <laughs> every, you ought to try doing my Twitter handle on Radio Hits. That one's a real, I didn't think about that one ahead of time, four for the fire. You, you spell it, and then there's a numeric, there's no good way to do it. So I messed myself over on that one. Sarah Montalbano, always enjoyed talking, my friend. We'll do it again real, real soon. Thank you. Ma'am, thank you.
Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're going back over to the UK because enough of our hot mess. Let's go make fun of somebody else's because it'll make <laughs> us feel better about ourselves, America. We go to our friend in the UK, Lettuce Bromofsky. Love having her on another one of our great Young Voices contributors. She has been doing so much UK media. I can't even link to it, but I'm going to link to her Young Voices page. You can go look. She's all over the place over there. You're a superstar, my friend. Look at you. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Thanks very much. And I'm delighted to be back on again. So here's the thing. We had planned on after our midterm election, I was going to bring you on and we were going to do a first 90 days of Liz Trust thing. Yeah, exactly. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was that was shambolic, to say the least, I would say. Um, she was in there. She is the shortest prime minister that we ever ended up having in there. And it all really just came crashing down around her. And I, I mean, I'm not going to come out and defend her in any way, but the mini budget of hers came out um, and it just sort of exploded back in her face. But I I would argue, and from my beliefs, it wasn't because of the contents of it. It was the way and the lack of communication that she came through with that. And from there, she just couldn't quite get it back at all, really. She had everyone kind of against her. There were just too many issues. She then had to backtrack on her um, 45p rate of in ta um, income tax rate. She was going to cut it to 40p, sorry. Um, and she had to backtrack on that. And then she had to fire her um, Chancellor of the Exchequer. And then another person came in um, and he basically just sort of changed it all around and went back on a lot of her promises from the election. So then the people who had voted her in felt betrayed and the public were angry. Her own house was angry. Um, and yeah, it just fell apart from there, really. Yeah, it, it was remarkable to what we we now have some perspective on it. So there's a couple of things here. When we had you on both during the electoral run in the party and then when after Liz Truss came into power, we talked about this. The whole mm -hmm. dynamic of that party election was Rishi Sunak had the backing of the MPs. She had yeah. the wider party and it switched once it went to our. It is very apparent the MPs never really backed her. Now, she walked into a lot of that with her own mistakes and that didn't help any. But it's just very apparent she she pretty much didn't have a chance from the go because those MPs were never really behind her for it to fall apart that fast. So that leaves us to Richie Sunak. He had mm -hmm. the he had the support to get into power. We're about three weeks in right now, almost four weeks. He's going to clear the forty five day mark, low bar I know. <laughs> um, but getting elected into power and then getting support once you're in power is two different things. Does he have the support he needs to? function not even succeed because we know it's still an uphill burner is it a functional majority is it a functional government right now in the house of parliament so as you say on a lot of those points like it's a very low bar that he's got to clear and in some ways he's quite fortunate in the fact that 
anything he does is being compared to Liz Truss's very short premiership, which did nothing really seems to go very well in that. So anything he sort of does seems to be on the up. He also did have the majority of MPs supporting him. The issue he has right now is um, opposition parties saying that he hasn't been elected by anyone to be in that position. So Liz Truss at least was elected by party members. Boris Johnson was elected by the public to be in there, you know, had the greatest mandate they've seen for three decades. Rishi, on the other hand, hasn't been elected by anyone except the MPs. So when he came in, it was said that if he was the only um, person running, we had this whole debacle about whether Boris Johnson would make a comeback at this point. Um, and it said they made a very tight deadline. They only had a week to get 100 MPs to support them. If you didn't have 100 MPs, you couldn't go forward and win the leadership to be in it. And if only one person went forward, it wouldn't go to the membership at all. Um, and instead, that person would be, you know, crowned the Prime Minister of the UK. And that's what happened. So Rishi was the only one who got 100 MPs to support him. So he did have the backing. And in fact, at the end of it, he had something like 160 MPs supporting him, which is over half of the MPs needed. What's happening now is he's under a lot of pressure to do something, but essentially not do anything too quickly, if that makes sense. So Liz Truss came out and she did everything really quickly, too quickly, that she didn't bring the public along with her. People need change. We're in this cost of living crisis. We've got the, a prime example of this is COP27, which happened just a, a few weeks ago, maybe just last week, actually. Um, and he said he wasn't going to COP because he had too much to handle back home in the UK with the cost of living. And people were obviously slightly annoyed about this, but some people were on side. You know, there were pros and cons on both sides of the argument for going. Um, however, he ended up flip-flopping around that and then changing his mind on that. And that was something that he's been heavily criticised for. That was this sort of first U-turn, essentially, in this, whereas you need to be able to go forward. Whatever you choose to do, do it with confidence and do it with conviction and bring people along with you. He ended up going... Again, that's completely fine, but it was a perfect example of he's still on unsure footing of where he stands on a lot of these things. He was a Chancellor Exchequer. He might not know very strongly what his environmental policy should be. And so he's kind of unsure going forward. Part of that, too, and you just touched on it. Look, this stuff is optics, especially after, you know, the flip flopping or the U-turn, as y'all call it. We call it flip flopping over here. <laughs> You know, the back and forth stuff just kills you optically. It yeah. killed Liz Truss. As soon as she started backtracking, you know, the policy doesn't even matter. Once that just looks so bad, you're done. There's another optical problem looming for Rishi Sunak right now, and it comes with his cabinet and his ministers and his appointees. Look, things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. So we got to back up. Boris Johnson, rightfully, by the way, got all kinds of hell because it came out that he had, you know, supported and ran a little cover for an appointee to get his votes and support. We've already had the Braverman thing happen again with the security stuff. Now we have the Williamson thing. Mm. If you're going to come in with, I'm not going to flip flop and I'm going to be on integrity. Well, you can't flip flop on a major trip overseas, which by the way, that's a big deal because the logistics of those things are a pain. I'm an old logistics guy. I'll tell you from firsthand experience, those aren't fun to plan yeah. and then replan and do again. And then you have these two appointments that are already making press not a good start and it's opening wounds that have not already healed. Is that a fair way to put it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And specifically on Gavin Williamson, which has very much been in the headlines this week. Um, essentially, this was a man, he's been in politics for a while. He's been sacked twice from ministerial positions. Once was when he breached national security um, as defence secretary, and once when he was education secretary under Boris Johnson. And essentially, he just did an absolutely terrible job. Um, but this is a terrible look for Rishi. Again, um, back we look back just like you're saying, three weeks to his first speech um, on the steps of Downing Street, where he said, I'm going to run this government with integrity. And like that's going to be the basis of it. He was very clearly trying to position himself away from the scandals that we saw under the Boris Johnson's premiership and all the issues that came along with that. Um, and yet Gavin Williamson has come out, there have been uh, leaked text messages, sorry, which show him hurling abuse essentially at um, the then chief whip, Wendy Morton, about not being invited to the Queen's funeral. Um, but that seems to be just the sort of tip of the iceberg on this. And since this has come out, um, there have been more and more um, allegations, one of them of which said that he um, told a senior civil servant to slit their throat. Um, he's also been accused of using uh, MPs' private lives essentially against them um, and encouraging negative press stories about difficult backbenchers to go out. And these are just a few of the allegations that have been going around against him. So it's sort of confusing to me how after not only being sacked twice from senior positions, he managed to find his way back into Rishi's cabinet as the minister without portfolio. Um, and it's a little bit confusing as how that we got to that position. Not good. Here's another bubbling problem that got left over, and this one hasn't gotten as much coverage, at least overseas, and frankly, not too much in the press over there. We were talking about this way back in the spring, but Northern Ireland's a mess, and it's a festering mess because it's not being dealt with. We dealt with this with our friend Connor Duffy way back in the spring. We were talking about this, that, yeah. hey, the Boris Johnson government's just kind of kicking the can on this. They're just kind of refusing yeah. to deal with it. We know about the Sinn Féin elections. We know about the problems within the union folks up there. Rishi Sunak needs to deal with this. I know he's got all this other crap going on, but th this is something that he's just going to, this is a grenade with the pin pulled. If he ignores this, he is going to be meeting with Michael Martin. That's been arranged now that got announced recently. The EU seems like they're actually going to be somewhat helpful here instead of fighting them. Like they, I know the Brexit stuff taints that, but it looks like they're going to set that aside and go, okay, we're going to help you fix this. This isn't getting press, but this is a very big deal and, and a very big potential problem for this administration. Isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and this, as you're saying, has been a problem that has been persistent for a good few years now. In 2017, Sinn Féin actually refused to come back to the executive for three years um, over a, a green a green scandal that was going on at the time. And then also there was COVID in the middle of this. And then we've now had eight months of the DUP refusing to go back to the executive, um, not just for you know the people of Sinn Féin, but these businesses, people need decision making. The, the health service, the uh, Northern Ireland has actually the longest 
waiting times out of the whole of um, United Kingdom for waiting time to see a doctor. Um, you know, they've got all these problems that are persisting, which might not be resolved from just getting them back into the executive, but it would certainly help to ease these problems. Chris Heaton Harris, who is the Northern Ireland Secretary, um, has come out and he is, a, it feels almost as though he is opposed to calling another election. Calling another election right now would cost the government £6.5 million. So, and considering they only had one, uh, you know, a few short months ago, this seems like the wrong step to be going in when everyone's in a cost of living crisis, everyone's financially struggling, and realistically, having another election, it wouldn't change necessarily the result. So what we have right now is the DUP have 25 seats and Sinn Féin have 27 seats. So there is very much power sharing going on at the moment. Um, and what they found from the last election was that actually the DUP lost votes, not to Sinn Féin, but to their more right wing um, sort of sister party called um, the D Unionist Voice, sorry, uh, the TUV, the, tr uh, the traditional Unionist Voice, sorry. <laughs> um, and... So they were actually lost about 60,000 voters to them and likelihood is that it, they could get a few more back. But it's not going to change the balance that's currently in place there. Um, but you made a really important point, which I want to touch on, is that Northern Ireland is not feeling in any way uh, respected or uh, appreciated, you could say, by the rest of the United Kingdom. Boris Johnson once said that over my dead body would we have a border in the Irish Sea. And yet that's exactly what we have right now. Things like steel has a tariff of 25% when it's coming just from England into Northern Ireland. We're meant to be one country here, and yet they've got massive, massive tariffs which makes it much more difficult to build schools, to build houses, hospitals, you, you name it. All those things are going up in price alongside the cost of living crisis that we're seeing, meaning it's just so much more difficult to do anything. So Rishi actually is in Blackpool. He was there today, as you said, he's meeting with the Irish Prime Minister. Um, and this is the first time that the Prime Minister has gone to the British Irish Council, which is what the meeting he's at at the moment is called, um, since 2007. So it's been a very long time. And at this council, there are representatives from Wales, Scotland, Ireland. So it's very much about bringing them back together. But it's going to be hugely important to what they do next because Northern Ireland is not feeling appreciated for what it does and what's currently in place is just not working. Uh, Lettuce Bromowski breaking down a whole lot of territory here, more territory to go. You just touched on this as part of the Northern Ireland mess is what do they do with the National Health Service? Y'all got a pending nurses strike, it looks like. This is really a mess. This is here. Here we go again. Problems with the NHS has been brewing for a long, long time. There's some real nuances here that we just can't get into. Like, you know, the actual unions themselves, it's almost a 50-50 split. There's legalities on what kind of a strike yeah. it really would be. It's not going to be all the hospitals. Um, it does look like it's going to involve St. Thomas's, which those of you that aren't familiar with London, if you've got the real prime offices in Westminster, you're looking across the river at St. Thomas's. So that's going to be nice and high profile for the MPs. What do we do with this? We know we've dealt with a rail strike on and off pretty much all summer and fall over there. <laughs> this this could get ugly in a really big hurry. Yeah, and I think the initial feeling is that this is slightly more pressing than perhaps a rail strike. You know, if our nurses are all striking, what happens to all of those people who are unwell? 
um, we, we, there is a clear systemic problem within the NHS. Um, and that I think is known by a lot of people. It needs reform. Um, the nurses are currently going on strike and they're asking for a 17% pay rise. So inflation at the moment is around 12% and they're asking for 5% more than that. But that is a phenomenal pay rise on top of you know what you're earning at the moment. And quite frankly, we're not sure that that would be affordable to come straight out of the government purse. Um, what we're seeing is that the NHS right now is where the reform needs to be and all the money that's being um, funded into that, you know, the NHS by no means is underfunded. And so there needs to be reform to find the money within the NHS to then be given to these nurses for, for um, an additional pay. We, we need our NHS to work, you know, it's not going to get any better by losing any of this workforce. We've got 8 million people on waiting lists at the moment for um, services across the UK. Today, actually, there's came out that the average waiting times for ambulances have reached their highest ever. You know, these are things we need to make the NHS more sustainable. And I think actually, usually I'm, I'm entirely opposed to striking and I'm entirely opposed to striking now. But I think that NHS nurses do potentially need a pay rise. There was that in the pandemic, they asked for a pay rise. So this sort of 17% hasn't come out of nowhere. And they have been asking for one for years. And in the pandemic, when they were working throughout that and working really hard, um, they were offered what I thought was a bit of a snub, a 1% pay rise after everything that they'd done for the country throughout those years. Um, and I think that, you know, we want to be getting the best people in that. A bit like I feel the same, actually, about um, politicians' pay salaries. I think they should be paid more. We want the best people in there that we can. Last year, the UK lost 40,000 nurses um, just leaving the industry. That's that's not sustainable. We need to get them back in. I think maybe a bit of a pay rise would be the answer here. Yeah. Lettuce Bromowski joining us. To be fair, we're about to have ourselves a rail strike here in America, too. So it's not mm -hmm. just your <laughs> issues. Just one quick question, put a bow on this. You know, every election, it's what do you do with the NHS? We've, mm. We hear it every time now. Have we gotten to the point in the UK where it's just such an unmanageable beast? It's so big. It's so important. You can't unintegrate it. Is there some kind of a actual management problem with how the government deals with the NHS besides the politics? Because now it's just everybody talks about it and the problem goes down the road. Well, sometime, at some point, it's not going to go down the road anymore. I know that's a really big question and a really big problem long term for the UK. But at some point, somebody's going to have to address this because this can't this is unsustainable right now, isn't it? Yeah, you make you make such a good point. And that's sort of exactly it, is that no one can reform the entirety of our health service within one um one four year stint within office. And so in so many ways, everyone does this sort of tinkering around the edges of the health service and pushes it down being like, in case someone else comes into power, it won't be our issue. Whoever's next, it won't be our issue kind of thing. And it does take, and it's gonna take a lot of strength of a government, particularly maybe one right now when they've got such a high mandate to really go in there and reform it, get rid of 
all the paperwork, the bureaucracy, the waste that's going on. We've got some NHS executives who are being paid £260,000 a year. Take some of their extra high salary and, you know, redistribute it. There is no shortage of funding in the NHS and the money can be found somewhere. Uh, let us Promoski join us. Okay, a little lighter topic uh, to round off because that was a lot of heavy stuff. <laughs> Let's talk Matt Hancock. Um, for the uninitiated, because I wasn't either until this popped off, um, <laughs> there's a TV show over there. We had a version of it for a while. It didn't do as well as it does over there. Uh, I'm a celebrity. Get out of here. One of these reality shows. They're going to go drop a bunch of people off in the Australian jungle, right? Well, Matt Hancock's is sitting in pee. Now, all due respect to the good folks of West Suffolk, who I'm sure are outstanding folks. I don't know if that qualifies you as a celebrity, but he was a formal health secretary. He is a sitting member of parliament and he's going on a reality show. Now this cost him uh, the Tory whip, which is a mm. figurative thing for those of you from Logan. Although Rishi Sunak probably wishes it's a literal thing he could take to his head for getting this headache put upon him. What do we do with this? Cause of course there's the thing about, well, politics is already a reality show, but this is an actual literal reality show and an MP and he's getting paid to do it, which I think is where you're probably your moral issue is going to be more than anything else. You know, Rishi yeah. Sunak did not need this. He's got it. What do we do with this Matt Hancock story? Cause this people are having fun with this, but it is kind yeah. of a serious issue. It's totally a serious issue. And I think the person who's risking the most is actually Matt Hancock himself. Matt Hancock here is a very um, controversial figure in some ways. He was our health secretary over the vast majority of the pandemic. And he had a major fall from grace, essentially, when he um, was caught having an affair on CCTV with his aide at the time. And this was also a time when he had implemented a rule that said, you cannot be within two meters of anyone to stop the spread of COVID. There it was in his office at work court, you know, and it was it was a horrendous and it was all over the front pages, this affair that he was having. He resigned then in 2021. And, you know, like most people, you would expect that would be the end of him. Um, but he's back. And I'm a Celebrity is I've never actually watched I'm a Celebrity. And the first show with Matt coming on aired last night, I did watch it. And I mean, it was just fascinating. It was so sort of gripping. He had to do all these challenges where all bugs were just essentially thrown all over him. Um, but it's, caught, it's ruffled a lot of feathers within the Tory party. Um, you know, like you say, he has a constituency of people he's meant to be looking after. He's being paid for a job and he's being paid £85,000 a year for that job. And he's just sort of run off to the jungle for a little bit. Um, and that he's being also paid £400,000 by the show to go on. So making him, I think, the second highest um, celebrity, if you can call them that. They're all very sort of second rate celebrities, I would say, um, on the show. It is believed that this money will in part go to a hospice within his constituency. Um, and he also, when he arrived in the jungle, got a particularly frosty reception from the people who were in the jungle because of how people have perceived him since the pandemic. Um, and, you know, one thing that I think a lot of MPs don't want, or a lot of people, they don't want MPs to think that this is an acceptable path to go down, you know. 
being a politician is meant to be a very respectable job here, meant to be very, um, uh, you know, down the straight now, helping people and being a sort of celebrity on the side. That's not really what the job's about. But as you say, Boris Johnson was essentially this comedic person throughout his entire premiership. Um, he was putting on his own show. He was making the entirety of government seem like some sort of reality TV show. Um, and so isn't this sort of just part of our normal lives at this point? Well, I can't say he's camera shy after the CCT <laughs> footage. So, but I, I think there's a debate to be had there. Yes. Yes. It's a reality TV show. Yes. New newstainment is a thing. We're doing it right now. You know, we're, we're mm -hmm. doing news and stuff, but we're trying to make it entertaining at the same time because we don't want to be boring about it. So there is an entertainment thing to it. I think when you start getting paid for it, I think when you do it to deflect from a scandal, I think when you do it at a time of crisis, which I don't think by any definition of the world, you couldn't say the UK is having a political crisis that every member of parliament should be spending every waking minute dealing with the economic and political turmoil right now. And you're out in Australia. Like, I, yeah. And claiming's exactly. a lot of this. Yeah. Next week, actually, um, Rishi Sunak has his autumn budget coming out and people are sort of saying he should be here for this. Parliament is currently sitting and, you know, this is a very important time, the last mini budget by Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss. We saw how badly that went down. This is a very tense moment for the government. And that is part of the reason why he's had this whip removed from him. You know, they think it's unacceptable. And whether he'll get that back, that's only, you know, time will tell kind of thing. Yeah, we'll see what his constituency in West Suffolk think of all this next time we have an election. Mm, uh, exactly. Speaking of which, the general election stuff has tapped down a little bit, which we kind of knew that was going to die off. They weren't going to do a snap election after that hot mess. Nobody really wanted to do that, except maybe Keir Starmer. Yeah. Um, going forward into the new year, because the way you just mentioned, the way the calendar sets up for the way Parliament does things, we're going to have another budget fight here in about a week. And then you're going to be getting into the holidays. Things should settle down a little bit, but you'll have all that economic news through the holiday season. The first of the year is lining up to be very, very turbulent. What should we be looking for as outside observers? Give me one or two things, kind of guideposts to check in on the Rishi Sunak uh, era. Mm -hmm. Is it going well? Is it going poorly? Is he getting traction? Is he falling behind? Give us one or two things to look at between now and kind of the first of the year as they navigate that. You already mentioned that the budget fight's coming. Yeah. And then you're going to have the holidays, which is going to be economic stories nonstop about how people can't afford Christmas. We, we know that's all coming. Then it's going to be the heating stuff, right? Yeah. These, what should we watch for under that noise, though? The, the, the major stories and the things that he will be struggling with massively is what to do about the cost of living crisis. We already got sort of £400 blanket um, across everyone to help with their energy bills. Um, there is current whisperings going on that he will actually increase that top rate of income tax to 50%. So Liz Truss tried to take it down to 40, it is at 45, and he wants to actually increase it to 50%. This would be higher than it was under the last Labour government. Um, there is also the fact um, of a windfall tax that he's hoping to put in place. There's been a lot of uh, conversations going on about the environment, as we were saying earlier in the podcast, that um, there was this COP27, which he ended up going to in the end. They reinstated the ban on fracking that Liz Truss had removed. Um, and now he's expected to be putting in a windfall tax on a lot of these higher companies. So if we take Shell, for example, um, they last year recorded a profit of 
30 billion pounds so absolute massive profit and yet none of this seemed to fall under the windfall tax that we have at the moment um and they're they they've actually come out and said you know we're willing to pay more we are doing so well at the moment that we are willing to um pay a bit of money back to the government to help people through these times so that is likely something come out and obviously there is always the ongoing international issue with ukraine and russia um and how that handles how that continues to play out what sort of level of support and spending that Rishi will be willing to commit to them um, is going to be a big, a big one for the winter. Yeah. One more last big picture question for you, the two, just as an outside observer, though, um, is it time for the EU and, and the UK to just start playing nice and figure this thing out? Because this has been going for a while. Breakfast, bre breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Play on word. I was thinking biscuit. Bre Brexit was what it is. It's been a couple of years. At some point, y'all just got to figure out a way to work together, yeah? Completely. I completely couldn't agree more. That's, you know, the dream, the ideal um, image right now. One thing which I hope is a step in the right direction for this is that Rishi Sunak um, and the French president are actually engaging in talks again to try and help with our immigration problem um, that we're having at the moment. And for a long time, I remember last year, there were actually video footage came out of French police standing by on the beach as boats of illegal immigrants crossed into the channel and went off towards the UK. Um, and it was a very sort of tense time between the two governments. Rishi has said that they're looking to open these talks again. And I think that's a step in the right direction. We need to get along with these people. They live a mere 20 miles away from us, just over the channel. Um, and it's so important to have these relationships. And it was actually something that Liz Trust was really bad at. I mean, spectacularly bad at actually was being able to communicate and have good relationships with these people. Um, Macron, she embarrassed him when she was doing leadership elections, saying that the jury was still out on whether they would be friends or not. She did the same thing for Nicola Sturgeon um, up in Scotland. You know, that's not how you work together on such a global level as we do at the moment. Um, so I think it's really important and definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah, our friend Les from Mosky. We've had her on quite a bit because things are busy over there. Tell you what, fair's fair. You pick something you want to talk about in America, and I'll give you free reign. We did that before our election. <laughs> had a couple of our UK friends take some shots at us because we got some mess going on too. Let's just be honest about it. Mm. Uh, so you pick something. We'll have you back on. We'll talk a little American politics too. We love that. You're always welcome. We greatly enjoy your insight. Just take my word for it. She's been all over media over there, rising media superstar. That's why we get her now. We want to be friends. We want to be in on the ground level. Uh, let folks know where they can follow and keep up with you until we see you again, my friend. Yes. The best place to follow me would be on my Twitter account, which is at L Um, And that's where I post all of my, all my shows and everything. Yep, we're going to link to her Young Voices page, too, because it's got a lot of those media hits yeah. overseas. I take in a lot of UK media. I suggest other people do as a lot. Growing UK media, a lot of new platforms over there, too. Good stuff. Yeah. Les Bromofsky, always enjoy talking, my friend. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. Just had my sip of sweet tea, so now we're raring to go. 
our congressional insider. He does all kinds of congressional reporting for The Independent. You've seen him on here many, many times. Has a great book called We Are Not Broken. Make sure you buy it if you have not already. Eric Garcia is back. How are you, sir? Doing well. How are you doing? Good to be back. You know, most reporters after the election, they get to take a little time off. Not congressional reporters because, boy, Whoa. howdy, is it a busy week in Congress this week, ain't Whoa. it? Yeah, so it's important to, re- it's important to recognize that right now. Um, so the House is having its leadership votes uh, this week, uh, but the, which is kind of weird right now because we still technically don't know who has the majority. We know, I mean, it, it looks like it's going to be the Republicans. But they so so there's the, the the kind of vote that's going on right there, and then on the same time, uh, we got uh, we there is the leadership vote for the Senate, and that one is probably the one that's more that, that that's going to be really interesting because there's there's a lot of knives out. Uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of people who are obviously trying to put the blame on Mitch McConnell. I don't really know how much I believe that, but then of course there's the House leadership vote for the Democrats. Because they're gonna either be in like a very thin minority or a very small majority, so there, there's, there's a, there's, there's a lot going on, and then we still got a Georgia runoff. Yeah, lots going on. Let's break those down for a second. Before we get into the politics, though, there's just some machinations to Congress. This is a machine yes. that runs a certain way. So right now, what's happening is you have the new uh, elected folks coming in. I know uh, JD Vance tweeted that he was in for his orientation this week, I believe, so he could take part in these meetings. You have the new people coming in. You got the old people going out. You got staff changing hands. There's a lot of just physical activity involved in a post-election season like this. For folks that don't see that, who aren't in the office buildings, who aren't in the tunnels, it's unmitigated chaos from now till the first year, isn't it? It is. It is totally like I was was, um, hanging out outside. There's this basement area in the Capitol Visitor Center. where Republicans were having their leadership uh, discussions and like some staffers were talking to others about like, yeah, we're going in the middle. Cause they, 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 you also change offices every, uh, every cycle. Uh, I mean, I mean uh, and depending on, and some people who get seniority, they move to different, they move to different buildings and then all the freshmen, they got to, they, they have their lottery draw. So there's that on top of that. Uh, new members have orientation right now uh, this week. And then the week after Thanksgiving, and then on top of that, there is there's the leadership votes for both parties for the minority and the majority. Uh, so right now, right, and, the, and then on top of that, you got uh, who's going to run, who, who's going to run the campaign arms. So it is uh, th- there's just an onslaught of uh, an avalanche of, uh, of of activity even during this supposed lull, you know, during Congress. Because the truth is, and you report on Congress, you cover there is no laws in Congress. There's no, no lulls at all. No, no. no the, the, the only lulls happen when everybody's tired and wants to go home. Well, the uh, country's tired of them wanting to go home, but that's another matter for another day. Uh, let's start with some of the machinations here. Let's talk about the one that's not going to get settled this week first, because that's probably going to be the more pressing one. Uh, yes. Let's say the Republicans, it, I, NBC's projecting it to be a three-seat majority, although it's not yeah. settled yet. But let, let's just let's work off that number: three to five seats somewhere in there. That's probably yeah. safe. Kevin McCarthy, this is not going to be done this week. He's got time on this election, although they're going to do the inter-party election leadership thing. This is going to go for a while because he's in a position where he's he's got the brass ring in his grip, but he can't tear it down yet. He's going to be in a mood to give a lot of concessions to a lot of people. They're going to be really slow to finalize this, to get all those concessions. This process is probably going to take 
probably the better part of four or five weeks, right? This is going to take the better part of four or five weeks. This is going to this is going to go until January third, which is when the new members get sworn in and when the new and when the new speaker gets sworn in. Uh, he is going to have to give a ton of concessions to your Marjorie Taylor Greens, your Matt Gates's, um, your Lauren Boebert. It looks like Lauren Boebert's going to win re-election. Uh, it, it, it is going to take a lot of work. It is going to take uh, him basically saying. People get to go back on committees. He, it's going to be it's going to be giving people you know prime jobs. Uh, he is going to have to keep a lot of people happy to hold this fragile coalition together. And the question a lot of people have always wondered about McCarthy is whether he is up to the task. That has always been the kind of immortal question for him: is like, can he actually uh, wrangle these people? So, um, so, so, so that's, so that's, so that's what, that, that's what I'm wondering, because like, unlike Paul Ryan, who, you know, gave a lot to them and John Boehner, who knew how to put the fear of God into them, he's not necessarily the guy you want on the wall, so to speak. So that, uh, and, and he's not, he doesn't have the political skill of someone like Pelosi. Yeah. Here's the thing with McCarthy. He's getting the job he's always wanted, and he's getting it at probably the worst possible time to get it with absolutely almost no support. We already know that he's going to be very beholden to certain folks. Underneath all this, you have a GOP that's gearing itself up for a who are we kind of fight for the next year or two going into a presidential cycle. Yes. You already have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene who came out and supported him now. because, And I first thing I tweeted about that is like, no, she's not adjusting. She's warming her way in. That's what that one is. Yeah, exactly. I see no way he holds this caucus together, especially when you don't have... See, the, you speak on this because you can explain it better than I can. The reason you need a 15 to 20 seat majority is because you need to give your marginal members shade on votes and let them vote against you every now and then. And you release them to vote on things. That's how you get stuff done. Yes. That's not going to happen vis-a-vis. You ain't going to get a lot of stuff done. Yes. So this is what this is what Brendan Buck, who was uh, Paul Ryan and Boehner's guy, told me is that, you know, this is going to be a virtually impossible job. But you need like you said, you need that cushion of like 15 to 20. The reason why is because there's always some members who are in tough races and you basically release them to say, look, I understand you're in a tough race. Do what you need to do so that you can create some some shade between the two of us. Um, and, and, you know, I'll let you, you know, we won't withhold money from you. We won't, you know, stop anything from you. We'll just let, we'll, we'll, we'll let that fly. That is going to be very difficult because if Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates, for example, don't want him to give an inch on the debt limit, um, which is something that very easily could happen, uh, then McCarthy is going to need to go hat in hand to the Democrats. And he's going to need to say, okay, I need your help. And then that's going to then, whether it's Nancy Pelosi or Hakeem Jeffries or whoever is leading that ca- uh, that caucus is going to say, okay, then, well, you're not going to, I don't know, uh, withhold money, uh, withhold money for this, for the DC government or, or, or just some kind of hypothetical, or you're not going to cut off funding for Planned Parenthood or, or, or anything like that. So they are going to have a lot more less. So this gives Democrats a lot more leverage and it gives McCarthy uh, a real almost kind of gun to his head. Yeah. Let's talk for a second about who's going to be on that other wall. 
Nancy Pelosi, of course, said she wasn't going to run again. That was kind of the deal to keep. I don't see any way she doesn't because they're going to really need. I, it sounds weird to say this. They, this is where they really, really need her because they could get a lot done with this slim majority. McCarthy's going to be getting it from all angles. She absolutely loves to live to make the Republican leadership's lives miserable. Yes. There's no way she's not in charge of the minority here for the next two years, is there? A lot of people don't realize this about Nancy Pelosi, and a lot of people criticize her, but her primary skill is keeping, and her main chit that she has, is keeping the caucus unified. I don't know anybody. Steny, God bless his heart. Um, you know, Hakeem is too, uh, too abrasive to progressives. Um, Clyburn is a whip, but he's not necessarily the, the enforcer. Uh, I can't think of anybody who could get Henry Cuellar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to vote as a block. And that is what Pelosi does. She's made a very, you know, for all the things that people criticize her for, she makes sure that the conference, that the caucus votes as a block. And I don't think you can get another um, Democrat who could, uh, who could, who could, who could do that, especially, and, and that's going to be especially needed when it comes to things like keeping the government open or, uh, or, or uh, avoiding a debt ceiling disaster. Yeah. Let's switch over to the Senate for just a second, because the house is going to be a mess and we're going to be talking about it for the better part of the next two years. <laughs> Let's start with our Republican friends. Boy, the Twitter was just ablaze about whose fault this election was. Yeah. And a lot of the MAGA people wanted to go to Mitch McConnell. A little more complicated than that. It is a lot more complicated than that. So let's just <clears throat> let's just be let, 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 let's talk about this. Let's talk about Mitch McConnell. It's important to remember that before Trump, a lot of conservatives didn't really like Mitch McConnell. They thought that he was too conciliatory toward Democrats. They thought that he didn't win enough elections. They thought it wasn't until he blocked Merrick Garland that you get the kind of image of McConnell as the ruthless tactician. Um, this is very much a reversion to the meme, but for better or for worse, McConnell, you know, a lot of conservatives and MAGA people are mad at him for not bankrolling Blake Masters. That's only partially true. He did raise money for Masters, but he just didn't use his Senate leadership fund to bankroll Masters because they looked at the focus groups and Blake Masters was just so repellent to so many um, swing voters and so many other voters uh, that thought he was too extreme. I mean, mind you, Arizona is a state that elected Barry Goldwater. So, uh, so, so, so there was that on top, but that is really not fair to, to blame McConnell because he did his job. J.D. Vance would not be a senator without Mitch McConnell spending something like $30 million in Ohio during the summer or during the fall. Uh, and he, and you know, that race would not, the North Carolina race would not have been out of reach for Democrats had he not just poured a bunch of money in. Ron Johnson's now calling for a delay. Ron Johnson in Wisconsin's calling for a delay in leadership bets. That is a bunch of horse hockey because uh, McConnell's spun, spending uh, in Wisconsin probably made the difference in that one-point seat, that one-point race so in Wisconsin. So there's a lot of desire to blame McConnell, but the, the truth of the matter is, is, <clears throat> there are, is that A, Trump just endorsed a lot of bad candidates. Uh, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, J.D. Vance in um, in Ohio required a lot more money that could have gone elsewhere. Um, 
Blake Masters in Arizona, uh, Herschel Walker in Georgia, just a lot of candidates that required more spending than, than, than should have been needed. And on top of that, uh, the other thing is just, uh, just like in the house, the Dobbs effect was real. Garcia joining us, our congressional friend. McConnell's got another problem besides Trump and the MAGA wing, though. Um, This is not my opinion. This is sourced because, look, I'm not a journalist, but I do journalist J stuff, so I talk to people. I don't just sit here and spout things off. This is sourced. He's got a Rick Scott problem. Rick Scott is grumpy. Rick Scott's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of ambition, and nobody likes him, and he's got no future prospects. This has mixed because remember the summer thing we had back in the spring, he launched his plan. Everybody mocked it, including (laughs) one of the few things that everybody agreed on from Biden to McConnell to whoever is like, no, Rick, shut up and go away. This isn't helping. Uh, We had the yacht incident, which came out of McConnell's office. Let's all be adults. Yes. He's mad. He's grumpy. And, you know, people are saying like, man, it wasn't five minutes after this election. He started calling folks that letter about delaying the leadership election that had three names on it. But that was a Rick Scott production. Let's all be honest. What's he going to do with Rick Scott? Now, McConnell's got the votes to keep his minority leadership. Yes, that's not in question. But he's this isn't getting worked out anytime soon. This is a problem. This is going to be a huge problem for Rich McConnell. So let's so again, let's be adults. Uh, this race, so so the leadership races, all of them on the Republican side at least, are uncontested. So he's going to get the leadership position. The um, the 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 three senators, I think it was Lee. Johnson and Scott or, or, or someone. And then Rubio, uh, I mean, they, they called for a delay in leadership. And then Rubio kind of called for a delay in leadership votes as well, um, even though him and Rubio don't necessarily get along. Uh, Scott and Rubio don't get along, I should say. <clears throat> but this is going to be a continuous problem because Rick Scott doesn't – I'm trying to think of the word. Rich McConnell doesn't own Rick Scott. Let me put it that – like there – um, <clears throat> other senators are beholden to McConnell because he provides them money. Rick Scott can just write a $150 million check and, you know, self-fund his campaign and he's okay. That is something that McConnell's going to have to deal with because Rick Scott can run an ad campaign and bash McConnell, or he can go to Fox news or he can go to Brett bear and he can, um, you know, kvetch about his, uh, uh, about his his woes with McConnell, but it's in McConnell really can't do anything about it, and that's the real tough thing. And, and also the other, the other difficult thing is that McConnell's losing a lot of his foot soldiers this, after this Congress. He's losing Rob Portman. He's losing Roy Blunt. He's losing Richard Burr. Uh, there aren't going to be a lot of those uh, grunts who are usually the bulwark against people like Rick Scott. Yeah. And the other part of that is too, Eric Garcia joining us. Those are the grunts that did a lot of legislating and stayed off of TV and Twitter. 
Yes. Which is the opposite of what Rick Scott does, which is he's all over TV and social media and wanting to yes. run for higher office and doesn't actually do a whole lot of legislating. That's right. the problem, because when this Congress comes back, Yes. There there was stuff that got pushed to this lame duck on purpose. And yes. now there's a lot of questions if this lame duck session is going to get anything done. By the way, on top of the rest of this, you've got this potential freight railroad strike that usually con yes. Congress can order arbitration to this labor issue that's getting ready to pop off right before Christmas due to union laws. I don't know if this lame duck's going to get anything done now. And that's a big reason. Look, Burr's leaving. So as he checked out, people like this, that's a big problem. Yeah, a lot of people are like on their uh, like are a lot of senators who are retiring are kind of like uh, seniors in the last month of before high school ends. <clears throat> you know, so Schumer just ticked off, uh, just teed up uh, a vote on same sex codifying same sex marriage for Wednesday. Um, so that's so that's so that's going to happen. Uh, but then on top of that, you've got the you've got the potential railroad strike. Uh, a lot of the unions uh, pushed back on. Uh, Biden and Secretary Walsh's arbitration, uh, I mean, uh, deal with, with business and rails. So, so that, so that's going to be a real, that's going to be a tough bit, uh, bid. On top of that, you've got a question of whether or not you're going to have a debt ceiling raise this, um, this kind of interim period because they, because there's really not a guarantee you can raise the debt limit in, uh, in a Republican house anymore. So there is going to be a lot of difficult, questions and a lot there's a lot of people are going to be cramming right before uh right before the end of the year <clears throat> yeah eric garcia joining us uh let's talk about the democratic side of the senate right now you know 49 plus one 50 plus one here's the reason why it's a big difference if it's 50 50 with a tie break and 51 yes. 49 depending on the georgia runoff and we'll talk about the georgia runoff in just a second 50 50 they have to split the committee assignments Yes. 51 49 they don't split the committee assignments which means they're going to have the subpoena powers this is one of those little technicality things that a lot of people don't think about you cover congress though talk about what a big difference it is between a 50 50 senate and a 51 49 senate that is a big deal because so for example the perfect example of this is the senate judiciary committee um in the uh earlier this year when the committee voted on katanji brown jackson's confirmation it was a deadlock and Schumer had to do a special procedure on the floor to, to, to get, to bring Jackson's vote to the floor, uh, the vote from Jackson to the floor. Um, on top of that, as you said, being, uh, being in the majority in the Senate, you get all the subpoena power. Uh, so that includes for the Senate Intel committee, where that is incredibly important. The Senate judiciary committee, that is incredibly important. You get more staff, you get better offices, you get more, uh, you, you, you basically get more allocation, uh, for the majority, and to say nothing of the more member of more members on your committee, so that you can break ties. That is incredibly important. So a lot of people are like, "Oh well, fifty-fifty. You know, Democrats still have the power because Kamala Harris breaks the tie." No, they still don't. They they, they have to do these kind of very tenuous power sharing agreements, and a lot of people don't recognize <clears throat> as much as Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer may fight for the tv screens they still have to come to an agreement of okay this is how it's going to do, do this is how it's going to work this is how we're going to share power this is how it's going to go and then they have to uh, you know plan accordingly that is not good you know if democrats get if, if Raphael warnock wins 
that is going to make all the difference for them on committees and confirmations and everything else they want to do. Yeah, of course, Raphael Warnock is the incumbent out of Georgia because of the last Georgia runoff, which we all know yes. how that happened. <sighs> What's the sense in Congress with this? Because I think, and of course, the Trump announcement is going to deal with this a little bit. I think the runoff actually hurts Walker. I know Kemp's going to campaign hard yes. for him, but Kemp's not on the ballot to raise him. He yes. underperformed Kemp anyway. Trump's out. The issue now is the Trump inter GOP fight that's going on. I think the runoff is actually going to hurt Walker now, where I didn't think that a couple of weeks ago. What are your thoughts? But what is Congress thinking? So it was interesting. We were talking with, uh, I was talking with Senator Gary Peters, who's chairman of the DSCC. His job is to, uh, you know, elect Democrats. Uh, he was like, when I asked him about Trump running, he's like, he basically was like, you know, right now it's just about Georgia. He's like, he basically deflected. The Democrats are laser focused on this. They are, you know, focused on, you know, ignore all the noise. We are giving all of our resources to Warnock. And it should, it should also be said, Warnock himself is a money printer. Uh, you know, him and Mark Kelly are probably the two best fundraisers that Democrats have. Um, John Ossoff is throwing his entire political operation behind it. Everybody in the in the Democratic conference is now just like, okay, our job is to salvage Raphael Warnock. Whereas, but I think that, uh, and Mitt Romney said this last night, he's like, you know, we've lost three races because of Trump. Uh, and now like, you know, this he basically said, yeah, this could affect us uh, in, in, in Georgia. And then, you know, Senator John Neely Kennedy, who likes to pretend he's foghorn leghorn, even though he's an Oxford educated guy, uh, you, you know, um, uh, you know, he's like, I'm focusing on, I'm not focused on 2024. I'm focused on 2022. Everything right now, Republicans and Democrats are focused on this. I think as of right now, the momentum is with the Democrats just because they want Pennsylvania. They want Nevada, Arizona, New Hampshire. Uh, but, and then, as you said, I agree with you about the Kemp thing because Kemp will campaign for Walker, but he can't carry, his supporters aren't going to carry Walker over the finish line. Conversely, Stacey Abrams won't be as much of a drag on Raphael Warnock as Kemp was a boon to uh, Walker. Funny how things switch around. You know, oh, last yeah. campaign, we thought it was the other way around. Garcia. Okay, here's the thing is the media narratives. One thing I took from this election I've been talking about is like, look, national narratives, you got to be real careful slamming them into congressional yes. and Senate races and statewide races, right? Congress, one of the reasons I talk to you and other people that actually work in Congress is because the people in Congress, you usually cut through some of that noise because they know what's really going on. Right. Besides the leadership elections that what are they talking about? Are they talking about 2024? Are they talking about the state of the Congress? Are they talking about the spectrum of whether Trump's running and what that means? What is it that the Congress people and senators, what are they talking about right now this week now that the election's done? They are talking about two things and two things alone, the Georgia runoffs and the debt limit. Those are kind of the two, the, those at least on the Senate side. I think that there is this expectation of, okay, 
we know that it's not going to be likely that uh, you get a debt limit increase under a Republican Congress because McCarthy just wouldn't have the votes. And he does. I don't think he wants to go to the Democrats to, to, to save his hide um, and prevent a default. So right now that is the primary focus on top of that. The primary focus is just everybody is everybody on the Senate is just like, we just got to wait it out. We just got to go to, we just got to go to Georgia. And then, you know, it's, it's funny because they still have this vote on same sex marriage t- on Wednesday, but it's almost like that's a foregone conclusion um, I was talking with a few with a few aides. They think like, yeah, we got the t- we got the sixty votes we need to do for this. So right now, the main thing, the main thing everybody's focused on is um, is getting pat is getting this debt limit stuff, getting all the stuff that they kind of pushed off until the election done, like getting their homework done before they all go out, before they uh, they finish for the year. So that is the that is the main main challenge right now is just let's avoid a potential economic disaster in twenty twenty three. Is the debt limit going to turn into a fight this time, or are they just going to push it off on the new Congress since they know, or is it because they know deadlock is coming, somebody's going to dig their heels in here? Because McCarthy's got a lot out there about how he doesn't want to do this going forward. Is that going to affect this one? Yeah, so right now I think that there's this feeling. So Manchin just said yesterday, Senator Joe Manchin said that, um, you know, he thinks the debt limit deal should be bipartisan. Other people are talking about doing it through reconciliation because that would just allow for 51 votes. Uh, and some people question whether Democrat, whether Repub- there would be 10 Republicans who would go along with that. So there is a lot of contention about there's this feeling that we need to do this now because McCarthy has said, as you said, I don't want to do this in the future. Speaking of which, since you just mentioned them, a uh, lot of Democrats are like, oh, we got a majority now. We don't have to listen to Manchin and Sinema anymore. Uh, no, folks, that's not how politics works, especially no. since you basically, I'm talking to our team blue friends here, you've basically announced that you're going to be gunning for Cinema and her seat yeah. in a few years. You kind of shouldn't telegraph stuff like that because guess what you just did? You made her way more important now. Yes. Uh, just walk through that because, yes, Markowski, Manchin, Collins, Cinema, the usual suspects are still going to be just as important with a one seat majority or a tied Senate. Absolutely. They're, in, in fact, they're probably going to be, Steve Dennis at Bloomberg pointed this out. At, because this morning, uh, Alex Mooney, uh, Representative Alex Mooney from West Virginia, announced he's running against Manchin. Uh, Manchin's going to need to take some votes against nominees just to salvage his own hide. Um, that makes cinema all the more crucial. She's going to be the swing vote now. And that, you know, a lot of Team Blue doesn't recognize. Manchin, at the end of the day, he wants to get to yes on most things. Cinema, it's never clear if she wants to get to yes or no. That was the big challenge during the uh, IRA vote. Uh, unless cinema is sponsoring something herself it's not entirely clear that she wants to get to yes on a democratic sponsored piece of legislation so she could very easily become the block swing voter this is also why uh democrats probably are regretting uh not spending in north carolina and not spending uh enough in uh wisconsin to push back on uh, the crime stuff with Mandela Barnes, uh, they, uh, because now they have to rely on cinema 
much more than they have to rely on mansion. So this is gonna, this is gonna, so so this is they're they're not out of the woods yet. Yeah, and to be fair, just because this is my neck of the woods, uh, Mooney's got two challenges in the ethics committee looking at him yes, in the face. So that's that's also why he announced right now because Morrissey, Jim Justice has joked about me. I don't think he really will. Uh, he's not going to be the only person going after that sentence. He's just trying to be first and get his name out there and uh, right. distract from this other stuff that's going to be going on in the next few weeks with him. So just for what it's worth, uh, just put yeah, that in the back of your pocket. The context is important. Alex Mooney is a very – he's under a lot of uh, – investigations for unscrupulous activity um and a, a red painted fire plug is going to win a congressional seat in west virginia right now so uh yes. that's that's not the concern this this is a mooney looking for mooney kind of move right here yes exactly uh eric garcia this stuff's always great i'll leave you with one more good little tidbit though um once we get through here and we get through the the lame duck we get through all this stuff we get the new congress seated in january What's the first order of business really going to be? McCarthy's promising everybody the moon. They're going to have to settle on something. We've got some economic stuff. We already talked about that rail strike could be a big deal right around Christmas. Yeah. What's the first thing they actually go after here? Uh, that is a tough question because they're probably going to need to do a seat. They're probably going to need to start working on the omnibus, even though, you know, because that's going to take a month. Which long they after. swear up and down. McCarthy's swearing up and down they aren't going to do because the conservatives, that's one of their conditions for letting him be speaker. And yet they're you're saying that's the first thing they're going to do. You see where the problem comes in right off the jump here. Yeah, exactly. That's going to be the tough thing is the omnibus spending. They need it. That's a must pass piece of legislation. The conservatives are saying, heck no. Um, and probably some, some more four letter words. Um, and that is, and, and, and that alone is going to be difficult. On top of that, McCarthy's saying he wants to get rid of the magnetometers and proxy voting. The problem with that is that a lot of his own voters, uh, his own members, use proxy voting. So that's so good luck with that, buddy. Um, but then on top of that, they also need to take into account that when are they going to, you know, they're not going to be able to pass the budget, so they're probably going to have to settle for a CR. Uh, so, this, so the first order of business that's going to be the first order of business is going to be deciding what the first order of business is going to be. Lots of interesting days, which means I get to have you on the program a whole, whole lot, my friend, going forward. I look forward to that. Uh, let folks know we're going to keep up with you. Eric Garcia, our congressional reporter. He works for The Independent. Great book out. We'll talk about that. Usually we bring it up. We'll, we'll talk about it some other time. Let folks know where they can go, where they can follow you, and where they can get your book, my friend. You can find uh, you can buy my book, We're Not Broken, Change the Autism Conversation, wherever fine books are sold. You can, uh, see, uh, you, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Eric M. Garcia. Follow my work at The Independent, my column at MSNBC, uh, and I will see you on the road. Yeah, brother, we're going to be doing this a lot because this is going to be one of the most interesting congressional terms I think we've ever seen. Don't think there's any doubt about that one. My friend, love talking to you. Let's do it again soon. Let's do it again. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so very much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we do what we always try to do. Turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the information that matters. Don't talk about the things that don't matter if we can help it and try to discern our times as best we can. Talking to knowledgeable guests, 
getting through all that caterwauling and trying to figure out what's really going on in the world. And that also means listening to you. So I got a couple different variations of the same question, both on social media and on the email. That's herdtellshow at gmail.com and herdtellshow on the Twitter both. We'd love to hear from you, by the way. And there was something along the lines of, well, you're constantly criticizing Republicans lately. Aren't you ever going to talk about Democrats again? Yeah, that's fair. Look, we just had an election and a lot of the narratives were about the Republican Party. So we've been talking about them a lot. Don't worry, we'll get back to our Democratic friends, our team blue friends. But let me explain just for a minute why that is. Frankly, it's a little boring. Now, our friends on Team Red probably aren't going to enjoy this part all that much, but I'm just going to tell you the truth as I see it as I sit here. Uh, we know what's going to happen mostly, God forbid, in the creek don't rise with the president and the president's party over the next two years. Look, Joe Biden's going to run for re-election. All that's noise. Unless something, God forbid, happens to him, he's going to run for re-election. Vice President Harris is going to be his VP nominee again. Just go ahead and chisel that one in stone unless something really catastrophic happens. And I hope it don't. Uh, I wish no ill will on any of them, and it's bad for the country. Let's let them stand for election. Let the people decide. But that's going to happen. So turn all that noise off. They're not going to switch out the VP and Biden's going to run. Also got another piece of news our team red friends aren't going to like. He's not going to be easy to beat. Oh, I know. It's doddering old Joe, Sheriff Joe. Look, I fell for that in 2020. I didn't think it'd be a good idea for him to run for president. I thought it'd actually be bad for the Democrats. He not only showed me wrong, showed a lot of other people wrong. And he won. Team Red, I need to explain something to y'all real quick because I know everybody's all excited about the new hotness. I know people are all excited about Ron DeSantis. I know folks are a little uh, fighting over what we're going to do now that pre former President Trump has announced that he's going to run. Let's just have some grown folk talk real quick about the lay of the political land right now, okay? President Biden was at his weakest at this midterm election, and y'all fumbled it, okay? I'm just telling you how it happened. A president with not great approval ratings, with economic troubles, with historical and cyclical trends going against him, and you folks, the Republican Party, couldn't make any headway, and in fact lost ground when it came to the Senate, and you barely took the House. Looks like you're going to have about 219, you're going to have about three, four, five seat majority, something like that. That's not good. That's underperforming by anybody's measure. The Joe Biden you face in 2024 will not be the Joe Biden of the 2022 midterms. He doesn't have all three branches of Congress in full blame of what's going on. He's going to be running against a Republican House of Representatives. He's going to get to blame them for a lot of things. They're going to obstruct. They're going to investigate. They're going to do all sorts of things. And by the way, the way it's looking right now, and we just talked to our congressional friend, uh, Eric Garcia, about this from behind the scenes, uh, McCarthy and crew in the House are going to have their hands full. They're going to have a hard time getting anything done. And it very much looks like him and his raucous caucus, we've been calling it a little bit playfully, may not exactly light up the scoreboard on getting things done. So President Biden's going to get a run against that, especially if it looks dysfunctional, especially if it gets ugly. That's going to be a plus for him. The presidency being an incumbent has tremendous advantages. Again, you get almost unfettered access to the press. You have all the trappings of office. You can kind of set the agenda in a lot of ways. You get to respond to world events. There's a lot of built-in things to the incumbency. Also, we just mentioned it. There's the specter of Donald Trump. He's already announced for president. 
And that was a smart move in one way is that now everybody that runs for the Republican primary looks like they're running directly against Trump because he jumped first. So you're going to have to deal with that. And that's going to be messy and it's going to be ugly. And there's not going to be a nice, quick, clean resolution to that. And he very well may want to just play spoiler if he doesn't win the primary, which he shouldn't because he definitely can't win a general election. That's just the truth. Donald Trump isn't winning a general national election in the United States of America in any year going forward. So if you're President Biden right now, all things considered, with everything that's happened, everything that's gone against you, the historical cycles, you're sitting about as good as you probably could be sitting, all things considered. And a lot of it, frankly, though, wasn't your doing. It was Team Red shooting themselves in the foot with bad candidates, bad policy, and some really bad ideas. But, President Biden, you're still going to have to run for office. You're still in charge of the country. You're still going to be held accountable. So it's not all sunshines and rainbow. Predict a very interesting campaign. Having said that, and having given some praise to our president's uh, current situation, let me back up for just a second and set some ground rules that we've been talking about internally here. We're going to have to throw out a lot of the playbooks going into 2024. We're off the map on a couple things. For one thing, we have a failed uh, former president who was voted out of office running for the presidency in a fashion that we haven't really seen since, you know, Grover Cleveland, if you want to go all the way that back. We just don't have president for what we're getting ready to see here. Not only is former President Trump running, several members of his former administration is running. Mike Pompeo is already running in all but declaration. And we've already talked at length about former Vice President Pence, who's had a who has had a campaign and waiting for quite some time now. He's doing the book tour, which will roll right into him running for president as well. So President, former President Trump's going to be running against some of his own former cabinet members. That'll be interesting. And then there's whoever else jumps in, the Ron DeSantis of the world and whoever else decides to get in this race. It's going to be fascinating. But let's learn one lesson from the midterm. This is a very different environment than we've ever been in before. So we're just going to have to all kind of learn together. We're going to have to all discern together, probably not prognosticate like we normally would and see how this thing plays out. That also means one more advantage to President Biden. He's the constant. He gets to sit as president, do his president thing and run the far more traditional campaign while everybody else tries to navigate the lunacy of this Republican primary we're getting ready to see. Now, strange things happen. Remember, President Biden was dead and buried and all of a sudden gets South Carolina within three weeks. He had that puppy wrapped up, cruised through the rest of the primary and then won the White House. So strange things happen. Primaries are hard fought and can end quickly or can get drug out longer than you ever thought. Let's not get in a hurry before we get to Iowa and Nevada and New Hampshire and the other early states. Let's just kind of see how this baby develops a little bit over the next year to 18 months. It's going to be a fascinating ride going to be an interesting piece of history. Let's make sure we enjoy the moment and discern it as it goes so we don't end up looking silly in a year or two. More Hotel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell Show. Quick update on the story we've been covering. We talked about this with our buddy Eric Garcia earlier in the week. If you haven't listened to that interview, go back and check it out on our Good Talks playlist. 
uh, Mitch McConnell got a challenge to his leadership from Rick Scott. Remember, we've been talking about this. Listen, Rick Scott spent the summer and fall basically getting owned by Mitch McConnell every turn. First, back in the spring, remember, he released that ridiculous plan of his that everybody lambasted and was basically a gift to the Biden administration to rail against. Uh, McConnell got him twisted up over that. Then there was the incident over the summer. Remember, he was in charge of the Senate committee to get people elected to the Senate for the GOP. We see how that wound up. So remember back in the fall when he got caught being on a yacht over in Italy instead of being out trying to round up new GOP senators. You remember how that worked out? That leak, this is not my opinion, I got this source, that leak came out of McConnell's team as well, so he got embarrassed there. And, of course, the fact that now the blame game, everybody was trying to point at McConnell. McConnell's, well, what about Rick Scott? I had to step in and do his job for him. So Rick Scott talked a couple people, including Senator Johnson from Wisconsin, to nominate him against Mitch McConnell, which is really funny because if Mitch McConnell hadn't turned the funding fire hose onto Ron Johnson, he wouldn't be a senator right now with his one point win. But nevertheless, they had this. And Mitch beat him 36 to 10 with one person voting present. <sighs> Mitch McConnell has owned Rick Scott so much this week, he could pretty much take out collateral against the man. But this is going to be a continuing theory. He's going to be continuing to throw on his side. Look, Rick Scott, like a lot of senators, thinks he ought to be president, not a senator, but it's slowly dawning on him that he's not going to be. Rick Scott is also one of the richest people in the U.S. Senate. So he's frustrated. He's got a lot of money, but he doesn't have a lot of power. He's making a lot of enemies, and nobody seems to really like him that much. Yes, he won some statewide races down in Florida, but this is kind of his ceiling, and he's not handling it well. Keep an eye on Rick Scott on Team Red in the Senate. He looks like he's going to be a problem for a while to come because his ambition has not been satisfied. But it sure looks like he's reached the ceiling of his talents. Those are dangerous people to have behind you, Cocaine Mitch. You know that already. Just something to keep an eye on going forward as the Republican minority in the Senate tries to navigate their future. More Hertel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. We were talking about ricotta cookies. That's why we're both smiling. That's Sarah Montebano back on the show again, getting to be a favorite because she always brings good information. How are you, ma'am? Great to have you back. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Oh, same as last time. Uh, we are going to talk a little education. She's with the Alaska Policy Forum, also a Young Voices contributor, good friend of the program. She goes all the way back to the radio days. I had her on the radio before we were ever doing Herd Tell. So you're one of the OGs around here. How's that feel? <laughs> It feels good. Yeah. I remember fondly a compliment your mother gave me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mom's probably listening. Hi, mom. Because we're going to talk education today. My parents, let's just start right there. My parents were both career educators. So I I, I take these kind of things seriously. Um, and when the pandemic happened, I was the primary stay-at-home parent for my two youngest kids because our school district shut down and they stayed shut down. There was none of this back and forth. They kept They kept that puppy down for 13, 14 months, whatever it was. You've got some data now 
this is really shocking numbers on what we did to our kids educationally for the COVID pandemic. Absolutely. Um, first of all, these numbers came out last week and the National Assessment of Educational Progress um, that was administered in 2022, earlier in January through March. Um, and so we're measuring three years of decline through a lot of that. Um, the most recent test was in 2019. Um, so, you know, 2020, 2021, a lot of schools were still closed. Um, and it's really uh, remarkable how poorly states did in mathematics, especially, but also reading, no states improved over this time span. It's really a question of did they manage to keep their ground or did they decline uh, a lot? <laughs> and they declined a lot. I'm just looking over some of these preliminary numbers. I don't even, honest to God, I don't even know where to really start with. They're talking <laughs> about kids losing years. Yes. Not semesters, not year. The average fourth grade math gains they basically lost two years of education. Yeah. Yes, eighth absolutely. Grade student, eighth grade students lost almost the equivalent of two years in mm -hmm. English scores. Like, I'm just, I don't even know where to start with this data set. I'm, I mean, you're compiling it. You sent me some of it. I was doing my prep. Like, I don't even know where to start because just everywhere you look, it's bad. It really is. There's a, a, my area of expertise is Alaska, and I've been living and breathing this data since last week when I came out. And at least in Alaska, charter schools, really the really bright point where charter schools were outperforming uh, the traditional public schools and, you know, providing an outlet for students that are really struggling uh, and in helping them advance through that. They did decrease by a few points, at least in Alaska uh, since 2019, but they are overall holding way, way above where um, traditional public schools are. Um, and, and it's really remarkable that nationally, fourth grade math gains are back to where they were since in, in 2005. I mean, we've wiped out 15 years of progress there. And, you know, reading the same story, eighth grade reading um, back down to 1998, uh, pretty much when these tests were inaugurated. Um, so it's it's really remarkable um, what having all of this online learning, these school closures, not having a teacher around, uh, maybe parents aren't as involved in, in uh, the pandemic age. There's, there's a lot of people theorizing about what caused this, um, but it's all pandemic related. Yes, yeah, Sarah Montalbano joining us. Let's just get into it and we're just going to have to go there because there's no way around this. It's the remote learning. That's what changed everything. Now here, there, but there's, it's too simplistic to say this is all remote learning's fault because no, it's not because there is a good portion of children in this country and a vast portion of college students that learn online just fine. Thank you very much. Now, I understand yes. kindergartners and primary, it's a little different. Let's be adults. Mm -hmm. But in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with remote learning. So let's just put that on the table. Yeah, We're, online learning should always be an option. You know, a lot of kids, it works really well. It was being thrown into this so suddenly um, that really, really hurt students um, in, you know, the spring of 2020 when this all started happening. Let's start with that. Let's just go through it. Yeah. There was clearly most of these schools did not have a plan on how to do remote learning. They were doing it on the fly. I know for mm -hmm. a fact because I sat there and helped my children do it. It got to the point where I would literally tell them, like, whatever they do Monday, don't worry about it because Tuesday it's going to change because everybody's going to call and complain and they'll change it. And that's exactly what happened. They were not prepared. They didn't know what they were doing. It was scattershot once they did it. And then once they started doing it, they didn't. There was a lot of not adapting. 
<laughs> Before I just bash everybody for that part of it, let's all be real clear here. I understand nobody saw the pandemic coming. I understand that it was something nobody really anticipated that we were going to shut the entire school system down basically nationwide. Even still, I believe crisis reveals things. I think this showed some real problems in the education system as far as flexibility and frankly, as far as prioritizing learning other other things, because when you went online and you just had to do the learning without all the other stuff, there's a bunch of people who just couldn't do it. Let's just call it what it was. Oh, that's absolutely the truth. I mean, I think mathematics showed a lot of really painful decreases in uh, proficiency nationwide, mostly because mathematics is really difficult to teach online and to do well. Um, and that this practice that has to happen at home to hone your mathematics skills uh, just wasn't happening as much. Whereas reading is something that, you know, hopefully if, you, if you've got parents that are involved, um, you know, you're learning some reading skills outside of the classroom. Um, and, and it just, it, the pandemic really revealed that um, the public education system isn't working well for a lot of students, um, not just students that were unhappy online, but thriving in a regular public school. Uh, but it's just giving a lot of students the opportunity to tune out and, and it's not an engaging education for them uh, in, in public schools or online. Um, so that's what I think we saw is a lot of school choice programs offered a way out um, for a lot of students during the pandemic um, to pick something that really works for them and their families. Right. And you mentioned school choice. So I want to go here because I'm a fan. Look, my kids have gone to both public and private school. I went to both public and private school. My two youngest are actually in public school now. But I believe in school choice. Not everybody has school choice. There's places where there mm -hmm. is no other option. They only have the public school Same. option. So I think it's really important we point out here that we also found out you can't just say, OK, school choice is going to fix everything because it can't. And I've seen this on the right and we need to discuss that you can't just abandon the public schools because that's the only option for a lot of people. And I think too many people wrote that off. I think there's a lot of learning here to do of like, OK, I know we all have our favorites politically and policy wise and things that we really believe in. Hey, this policy is really going to work. We also got to understand we got a diverse country and those policies doesn't work everywhere. Is it fair to take that lesson away from this as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the lessons I draw from this data, at least, is that um, states with really strong public school early literacy, you know, advances programs um, that have had this for a long time, their public schools are doing really, really well despite this. Um, and that it's not so much whether it is being online that is the cause, but that the teaching methods that were, you know, forcing students through in traditional public schools maybe aren't working so well um, in, in any case. Um, so Florida really did well. Um, Mississippi really did well. They have uh, strong early literacy programs. Um, in, in places like that, uh, you know, you, you obviously can't abandon public schools. That's not a good choice for a lot of people. And people shouldn't have to abandon public schools in order to get a good education for their children. Um, so that's one thing I'd like to see is see more states adopt these kind of reforms that'll actually, you know, teach students how to read before fourth grade and things like that. Yeah, Sarah Montabano joining us. There's a thread there that we have to touch on because, look, I believe that when you're talking about really tough policy stuff, you got to be practical, too. Absolutely. Florida, Alabama, those are those are warm weather states. Those are southern states. <laughs> it's just a fact. Part of this COVID thing, we know the winters were harder than the summers were. That's when you had mm -hmm. spikes. That's when you had trouble. You have kids basically stuck inside for longer periods of time. When you take away school, 
and they go to the home environment, and especially when you have seasonal differences and you have weather differences, and there's other data here that you're pointing out in this data set, you start seeing economic differences mm -hmm. and things like this. I really think we need to have a long, hard conversation about how one-size-fits-all education is just not going to work because you're seeing it here. Cold weather states, they perform differently than warm weather states. Higher income brackets, well, they can hire tutors. They have probably better Wi-Fi. Look, they have, mm -hmm. look, West Virginia, they had to ride around in buses and set up Wi-Fi stations because nobody has Wi-Fi because there's no broadband in Watts Swats. You can go 20 minutes out of a state capital in the United States of America and there's no broadband. Like, that's just a fact wow. of life in West Virginia. I, Alaska, there's wide stretches We've where got there's, that too. <laughs> there's not even cell service, right? Mm -hmm. We've got to realize there's diversity issues here and quit with this one-size-fits-all, throw-money-at-it mindset. I really take that away from that data says, like, all these divides are because you try to push a one-size-fits-all, and then this is all the stuff that goes through the cracks. Absolutely. I mean, broadband was such a huge issue in Alaska. And that was, I think, one of the things that this pandemic money was uh, trying to fix is establishing enough Wi-Fi for students to be able to do any of this learning. But you can just really see this this one size fits all is not working. We're seeing that obviously um, higher performers are losing less, uh, lower performers that are you know already on the margins of not being able to do some of these skills. They're, they're dropping a lot and maybe they need more intensive intervention than the public school system can give them. Um, and that's, that's it's absolutely the lesson to draw from this data is that a lot of states have really different situations um, and that legislation and policy need to be crafted to those situations. joining us. You talked about the early literacy. I want to come back to that again. Here's why. Because we know we spend more money on education in America per capita than just about anybody else, and we're getting less for the money. That's just the fact. Yes. Throwing money at education does not improve education. We've got all the data in the world. Let's all be grown-ups. Mm -hmm. However, you talked about those early literacy programs. There is data that those have an effect. Those are expensive, though. So yes. where do we start having the conversation of, yes, we're spending tons of money. There are some things in here that cost money that are worth the money to spend. It sure looks like from the data set, especially that fourth grade and under, and then that fourth and fifth and sixth, that's kind of the tipping point where you get into the more advanced studies. And if you don't have the reading skills, you're not going to pick them up then because then you just get tidal waved with everything else, right? Fourth grade level and down literacy. We should probably just say, we know it's expensive, but we got the data. That's where we fire hose the money. Is that what you're seeing? That's absolutely what I see. It's so worth it to have these early literacy programs. And by the time that the NAEP exam is testing fourth graders, you know, students by third grade should be able to read because up into fourth grade, you're not uh, learning to read. You're reading to, to learn other materials in mathematics, history, social studies, um, any of these other fields. Um, and so, you know, students at that stage start falling farther and farther behind. And, and really, you know, a lot of assessments begin at third grade 
when you should be doing little check-ins throughout the year, and maybe that's expensive, but it is worth it to catch this early uh, and to be able to actually direct, you know, a lot of these programs have early literacy coaches that'll go to schools and train teachers in the science of reading. Um, there's, you know, intensive interventions that are expensive, but important for these schools that are really struggling. Um, so I think that's really where the bang for your buck comes from in education spending. Um, what we see a lot of is just growth in administrative and support staff, which are important, but not necessarily at the rates that they have been growing. Um, and so if you need to find the money somewhere, start looking there first. Yeah, Sarah Montebano. I'm gonna I'm gonna rant for just a second, but it's needed. Please do. That administrative and support staff level, you can look at any chart you want to, and it's basically a hockey stick graph. The amount, mm -hmm. the explosion and where all the money's going, it's not in classroom teachers. It's a reason why they take all that money, but I gotta spend more and more every year on getting Kleenexes in the classroom and pencils, right? It's all mm -hmm. going to this administration level. It's going to those folks that never darken the door of a classroom. I've got, I'm, this is real talk on this show, folks. Maybe this segment ain't for you. Let's just talk real. I got visceral anger at the fact we've spent so much money on those folks. And when COVID hit, no offense to them, and I don't mean them personally as human beings, their positions were worthless. Yeah. Because now you have an in-classroom teacher in front of a camera trying to teach students. Mm -hmm. And those people are nowhere to be found. And they're making sometimes double what that in-classroom teacher is doing. Like, this is so broken and so backwards. I don't even know where to really start with that, but I know where the money's going. It's going to things that are not in the classroom, and the data in the classroom is showing that it's not going to the things in the classroom. Absolutely. I'm going to show you an article after. I'm going to send you this link. Uh, but the Reason Foundation did a study of where education funding and revenue has gone since 2002 up till 2020. Um, and supports services are have gone up, you know, in Alaska, support services are up 50% since 2002 after adjusting for inflation. So you can't say, well, inflation's whittling this away. Um, and when you start breaking it down into actual uh, by what they're doing, uh, you're seeing, you know, school administration and, you know, general administration going up a lot. Um, it's it's really remarkable how this has happened. And in, you know, Alaska, we are pretty notorious for having really expensive per pupil education next to really, really bad outcomes. In this NAEP results, Alaska, you know, fourth grade reading, we're down second to last nationwide ahead of only New Mexico. Um, and we're spending, you know, $18,000 per student. And, you know, a lot of it's going towards administration and, you know, buildings and, and things that are, you know, necessary, but not in the levels that we are funding them. Yeah, Sarah Montabano. I'll talk about my home state, who I love so much. You send me the data set on it. West Virginia has 78% basic or below basic mm -hmm. for fourth grade. We've always, West, I'm talking about West Virginia, we've always been at the bottom of every education. We're on the bottom of every list just about, but we've always been on the bottom of it. Look, my parents were both West Virginia school teachers career-wide until they retired. My daughter's in college to be a teacher. She's probably going to be a teacher in West Virginia right now. What do you do with a state that's mostly rural, obviously poor, losing population? They're going to have trouble. You know, the, you're not going to have money to throw at the problem there. Mm -hmm. So now what do you do? Because when you see a number that that, you know, nationally, you're talking about two thirds and they're above that 78 basic or below lacking skills, no mastery of simple tasks like inference. Let's go back to what you just said. 
There's a tipping point in school education. I've heard my dad talk about this for years where you they stop teaching you how to learn and then it's just adapt to what we're teaching you so you learn it. And that lack of skill set is where you just start burying people and being unable to learn, not just for a grade or two, but for a lifetime. What do we do to fix that? Oh, that's a big question. Uh, I wish I had. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, Alaska's in the same boat with that. We've got 76% of fourth graders can't, you know, do these basic reading tasks or only show a little bit of mastery. Three out of every, every four students don't know how to read. And that's that's really remarkable. It's difficult in a rural state, especially with um, going online for COVID. There was a lot of chronic absenteeism, and we were talking about this before we got on the air. Um, but there's, you know, chronic absenteeism has always been an issue in Alaska, but it really spiked due to the pandemic. Um, so the first thing is trying to get you know, children's butts back in their chairs in the classroom. Um, and then so much of this is coming down to teaching techniques. Um, you know, if you're trying to teach reading with the whole language method where you're looking at a word and guessing from pictures and and all these different things, you know, you're not going to learn to read as well as if you start sounding it out and you, you're using phonics. Um, and so that's where these early literacy programs come in for, uh, you know, public school systems. And then the last thing I would say is West Virginia has opened up in 2022 this year, uh, the HOPE Scholarship Program, which is an education savings account. Um, Opening more school choice options like that for students will help them really try to escape these really failing schools um, and and teachers who either don't care or aren't uh, putting in the necessary work to get them where they are. Um, and so, you know, expanding school choice options, I think, should be an important key to that, but it's not going to solve the problem entirely. Sarah Monteblano joining us. You mentioned the teachers, so let's take up for the teachers because, again, I, I think what happened in the pandemic for the most – and you had some bad teachers. You always have a few bad ones. I'm talking about the majority of the most of them. I think the teachers really got screwed because I think the administrative level wanted to put all the blame on them for the problems. Mm-hmm. They're getting it from the parents. They're in a situation they've never planned to be. I think the teachers got it on all sides, to be they fair did. to the teachers. Really we've got, And we've got the stats now leaving in droves. They're having a hard time recruiting teachers. We can't find enough teachers just about anywhere right now. How do we solve that problem? Because again, just throwing money at it ain't, ain't look, I know it, look, every, no politician is going to come out and say teachers make good, a good living. It's not a bad living when, you know, you work nine, 10 months out of the year, get weekends and holidays. Let's you're doing okay. I agree. You may be a little underpaid depending on your location. It's not just a pay thing. How do we get that profession, that career path? That used to be a revered thing. It no longer mm-hmm. is. Some of that's cultural. What do we do about this teacher shortage? Because you and me can, and whoever, mm-hmm. we can talk policy all day long. If we don't have enough teachers and teachers in the classroom to implement policy, it ain't going to matter. Huge question, but there's a few parts I want to touch on. Uh, one of the things I personally think would help a lot 
is making it easier to become a teacher and not saying we're lowering standards, but you know, I'm saying, you know, look, I got a bachelor's in computer science. Why can't I just go take the teacher licensure exam to go be an AP's computer science teacher? Uh, why, why do I have to go back to college to get teaching degrees, which, you know, are a large part um, politically saturated with certain uh, teaching methods and stuff like that? Why do I have to go back you know, if, if I'm an expert in my field uh, to get that. So reforming teacher licensure to make it easier for also cultural and community leaders to do some teaching in schools. That's one thing uh, we'd like to see more of in Alaska. It's, it, that's a huge part uh, to it. Don't make teachers, potential teachers go back to college because a lot of people are just gonna say, no, no, that's not worth it. Um, and, and it's not worth it also because of you know, how teachers are treated. And I think administrators really threw teachers under the bus in a lot of ways um, during this pandemic. And they were also the most visible part. You know, you're not watching administrators give online lessons to your kids, you're watching the teacher. Um, and so that's that's a huge thing to make teaching a respectable profession. And it doesn't need to be necessarily more high paying than it is. Um, this is a little wonkish, but I'd like to mention it anyway. Um, reforming the way teachers' pensions work so that they are more portable between districts and jobs would help a lot for teachers to not feel like, well, if I leave this district, my pension's, you know, back down to a really low level. I'm being penalized for movement this way. Um, and that would help bring in teachers from other states um, to have that. And then also recognizing teacher licenses from other states uh, would help a great deal. Yeah, Sarah Montalbano joining us. I, I found this out firsthand because I went to find out what I needed to do to substitute teach when I first left the military. <laughs> you only needed 30 some hours to get a substitute teaching. Absolutely. But there was people with master's degrees and one guy I know that was actually a doctor who did a text proxy with me. He's like, no, I just have a substitute licensure because I don't want to fool with it. He's a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, no, why is he gotta... not qualified to teach yeah, high school he, biology? He's like, I don't want he's like, I don't want to fool with it. So I just get a substitute and I help out when I want to. And we were doing a test proctor thing, which you didn't even need that. We were just, you know, watching sixth graders take a test for their standardized testing, stuff like this. Let's go back big picture for a second, because this is going to come off harsh, but I want to go there because it's important. What did the pandemic see? I think crisis reveals things. I think crisis tells you the truth because it strips away all the nonsense. So if we look at the pandemic and we look at people's actions, not their words, I think a lot of people told us exactly what kind of education system we had. And I think and I've talked to my children who went through this, who very much struggled. They found out that they were cogs in a wheel. That's how they felt. Absolutely. That's a cultural thing that's not going to change. I think the teachers feel like they got screwed on all sides. And I think they've got a legitimate beef there. Mm -hmm. I think what we found out in the United States of America in 2022, 2021, 2020, we've said our schools are about education, but our actions and the way we conducted ourselves during the pandemic said it's not about education. It's a jobs program and a daycare center. And that's how we funded it. And that's how we treat it. And that's what we expect from it. And mm -hmm. that's why we acted the way we acted. If I went to a court of law, I think I can prove that. I don't think I can prove that we're all about education after this. Do you disagree? I mean, that's my opinion. What do you think? Because that's what I drew is like, we, we revealed what we really thought about education in America. Absolutely. Education right now does not teach students uh, how to be critical thinkers, how to be creative, um, things like that. It's really, you know, I, I, I was great at school. I enjoyed my time in public schools, 
but it's not a place for students that are really looking to create these like next century jobs and innovations and things like that. Um, you know, states need to start thinking about um, re reforming their, their programs to actually put some emphasis on this. Um, and, and to really bring back rigor too is, is a huge part of it. I mean, I look at you know, college entrance, entrance exams from 1920 or 30, and there's not a single question on there I could answer. And I consider myself fairly well-educated. Um, and so that's, that's something I, I see a, a huge problem with is just, it's not rigorous. It is being treated like a daycare center. And then, you know, when you say, well, we're not going to have the daycare center. We're going to make you guys uh, do this daycare center, and then we're going to still try and teach. I, it's really no wonder that scores dropped so much. Yeah, and again, let's just call it what it is, because back then the test scores didn't determine your funding. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what that's where the the paradigm really shifted. But we'll get into that some other time. Sarah Montabano, this is going to be a generational problem, so it's going to be a generational fix. We're going to be talking about this a lot, but I appreciate you. Hey, this is one of those you went to me. It's like, hey, we need to talk about this. So I appreciate it. I hey, made my show prep easy. This is something we're going to be talking about a long. Look, I've, I'm, and again, this is personal because I see this in my own kids, yeah. where you know my own my youngest daughter is like, why should I study? They're not allowed to fail us, and they weren't because yep. in the state of North Carolina, it got out. Somebody leaked it that you know they're scaling all the zeros to fifty, so everybody passes. The kids are smart. They know that. And she's, you know, this is an integrity problem. I got a parent out of her, but she wasn't wrong. She's like, why should I study? They're not allowed to fail us. The mm -hmm. kids are smart. They, they know what we did to them. And Absolutely. we're going to have ramifications for a generation on dealing with what we did to these kids mm -hmm. during COVID. Even, I, and I understand there's a pandemic. I look, I'll give you the first couple of weeks. Nobody knew what was going on. I get it. But we're going to be reckoning with this for a very long time. I'll give you the last word because I've been talking a lot here. But when you looked at this data set and you looked over, just what do you take away as to what we need to do now looking forward? What's the next thing to look at? What's the next thing to advocate for, do you think? Big question. Three parts. Um, first of all, we can't let this happen again, um, especially not to the same cohort of kids that are still going through, but especially... Um, especially those kids, but it just, it, we cannot either be so unprepared for an online transition or do it at all. Because I think there's a lot of kids that just cannot or will not learn uh, through a screen, um, especially younger kids. I mean, you're asking them to sit down in front of a screen for hours and that's, that's just not going to happen. Um, the biggest thing to improve public schools are these sort of literacy improvement programs. Um, right now, we need to catch up. And that's going to be really stressful for, you know, older kids who have been living with these, um, living at this level of, of proficiency for a while now. Um, but that's something that in order for colleges to be ready, for trade schools to be ready, you know, students need to learn how to read and have base, basic math skills. Um, so there needs to be some substantial remedial time on that. Um, and then finally, we need to continue to improve school choice options nationally. Um, states have control over these. Um, so, you know, get as much legislation introduced as you can while parents are still really dissatisfied and, and just try to improve this learning loss however you can. Students that learn best elsewhere should try to make that jump, um, you know, as soon as possible, or at least make incremental changes like 
hiring a tutor, taking some classes at a different school. Hey, all those non-certified teachers, you put a tutoring program together, that might be something somebody might want to look into. That's free. I'm not even going to charge you for that one. Just check it out. <laughs> Sarah Montabano, she's one of our favorites. Um, we're going to keep having you back on a host of topics because you're great at this. We appreciate you. But until we get you back, let folks know where they can follow you, where they can keep up with you and what you got going on. You will be able to find my upcoming report on www.alaskapolicyforum.org. Uh, that's where I do all my education work uh, in Alaska. You can also find me on my Young Voices talent page and on Twitter at Sarah Montalbano, and the O is a zero. Yep, it's a, which messes me up every single time I do it, quite <laughs> frankly. But, uh, Sarah Montalbano, <laughs> nah, it's not your fault. Hey, <laughs> every, you ought to try doing my Twitter handle on Radio Hits. That one's a real, I didn't think about that one ahead of time, four for the fire. You, you spell it and then there's a numeric, there's no good way to do it. So I messed myself over on that one. Sarah Montalbano, always enjoyed talking, my friend. We'll do it again real, real soon. Thank you. Yes, Ma'am, thank you. tell let's end on a good note love doing good stories to end the note on let's go down to the delta mississippi today but i got this uh link from a really good follow on twitter uh soul foodie that's p-h-o-o-d-i-e soul foodie great twitter account if you're a food person uh you can figure out what kind of food they prefer uh but this is from mississippi today marco twice mangum didn't just want to create the grocery store her hometown desperately needed. She wanted to bolster the Delta's long-struggling food system. Enter Pharmacy Marketplace. That's Farm, F-A-R-M, F-A-R-M, you know, clever marketing there. Pharmacy Marketplace, a neighborhood grocer that isn't just the first store in decades to offer web shoppers fresh meat and produce, but also a steady marketplace for small-scale farmers to sell their crops. A huge amount of food waste goes in the Delta because everything is so sparsely populated, she said. No supermarket businesses is going to contract you to buy 20 pounds of tomatoes every couple of weeks, but the pharmacy marketplace can, giving the region's struggling small-scale farmers a more reliable income and the people of Webb, that's the town down in Mississippi, access to produce without driving a half-hour to the nearest grocery store. The Mississippi Delta may be known for its fertile soil, but its a major farm operations largely grow soy and corn for animal feed rather than produce the food the region's population actually eats. There are few industries and jobs outside of agriculture in most Delta counties. The poverty rate is between 30 and 40 percent. It's also covered what the USDA agriculture calls rural food deserts, low-income tracts where a third of the population lives more than 20 miles from the nearest large grocer. Mangum hopes she's creating a pharmacy marketplace will become a model for other communities. Webb is home to just under 400 people and is 97 percent black, according to the census data. Before pharmacy, shoppers seeking poultry, steak, fresh fruit, and veggies needed to drive 25 miles to the Clarksdale Walmart or 18 miles to a super value over in Charleston. It saves people money, and instead of investing in gas, they're able to purchase more groceries, said Web Mayor Michael Pletz. The new store is in the heart of the town's main street, meaning many citizens can also walk there. Clad in a green apron and a wide smile, Magram's mother is one of the store's workers. The community is rallied around. 
the store, desperate for it to be successful, and volunteering their time so the neighbors have a reliable place to purchase healthy food. Mangrum lives in Atlanta part-time and is regularly in web to manage the shop and run a 150-acre farm. Her nonprofit in her shoes aids women experiencing homelessness in Georgia and offers farm training in Mississippi. The shop is operated under the nonprofit USDA Grants Fund, and the pharmacy market had a soft opening back in October, but it couldn't come at a better time. The local Dollar General, which may not have fresh food, but plenty of essentials for folks, had burned down just weeks before. Dollar General said in a statement they were still assessing that store's future, and Mangrum has added more household essentials to the store's inventory to help make up for the loss of the community's only major retailer. Feeding America, a national food bank organization, reported that 31% of Tallahatchie County's black community was food insecure in 2020, the latest, latest data available. That rate measures access to food between finances, transportation, and physical grocery stores. Easiest food to get in web before pharmacy open was, of course, frozen dinners, pizzas, chips, and candy. So Magrum's vision isn't only about giving the Delta community a more reliable food system and economy, but also making it healthier with access to unprocessed, nutrient-dense foods. On a recent Friday afternoon, Dimitri Starks, 54, was browsing the new grocery store with her 86-year-old mother. Starks grew up there and now lives in Memphis. Hadn't been to a neighborhood grocery-like pharmacy in the area since she'd been a child. They had all closed up and people had moved out. Much of Webb's population is aging, and it gives Starks peace of mind that her mother no longer has to drive so far to get the items for supper. It's a symbolism of growth and rebuilding the community, Starks said, and it's helping bring some type of stability. Lonzo Wright is in and out of the shop regularly, able to easily get supplies for his burger and fries restaurant called Zell's that's down the street. When Pletz, the mayor, had a steak, he could just walk a few minutes to the store and buy what he needs that night for dinner. Quote, since the day it opened, it's been a blessing to the community, the mayor said. Magram has other goals in mind. A local poultry producing facility Delta Farmers can use so the store's poultry is coming from the community and further creating jobs. She's busy writing proposals for more grants. And she's partnering with the nearby community college's workforce training program so that students can get retail job experience at the store, earning $10 an hour. Better my first retail job. I got five twenty-five an hour. Got bumped up to five thirty-five an hour. I thought I was rich. Granted, that was twenty-plus years ago. There are three participants so far. The store is open seven days a week. On November first, it began accepting EBT benefits, which is great for both the store and a community that heavily relies on them. People want to shop and work where they live. It's simple, yet not the norm across the Delta's rural towns. People want to see the program succeed. She said, "It's not just a grocery store." It's the town's quality of life. Love these stories. Love highlighting stories. People making a difference in their community, trying to do something good. Also rising up a business, but helping people along the way. We'll highlight those stories every chance we get. That'll do it for Hurtel. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We've done whole shows and segments just based off what you wanted to talk about. Maybe you had a criticism we needed to answer. You thought there was a story that wasn't getting covered or covered correctly. We've loved to hear from you. Hertelshow at gmail.com. You can send us an email. Hertelshow on the Twitter. You can direct message us and or just reply to any of the major uh, things we put on there, like clips, like notices when new episodes are out. So make sure you're following us on Twitter. That'd be great. Also, uh, you can follow all our guests and myself on our social media. It's on the screen on the YouTube pages. Make sure you're subscribed on that YouTube page. There's extras there that's nowhere else. The iTunes, Spotify, and all the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, anything you can get a podcast on, we're on it. We're even on a couple of Indian language ones that I can't pronounce, but I know we're on there because I see the data. Y'all listening in India, we love you. Appreciate y'all. We're worldwide here, you see. 
I got a little bit of an announcement. Uh, back when we first started doing her tell, I was pitching somebody who was helping me learn the production side, and he was showing me a uh, podcast of a friend of ours that had 50,000 downloads, and we made the remark, like, well, we're not going to do those kind of numbers, but uh, we'll see what we can do with it. Well, yesterday we crossed 50,000 downloads. So thank you all very much. That's why it's so important that you subscribe, even if you watch on YouTube or another platform. If you could subscribe and leave a rating and a comment on any of those podcasting platforms, that would be great. That lets other people know that Herd Tell is worth checking out. Make sure you share us on your social media. That's the only advertising outside of our own social media we do. That's how we've been growing. It's all been you folks. And as long as you're listening, we'll keep doing it. Thank you so very much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. So until we talk to you again on whatever way you're watching, listening to Herd Tell, wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed, and we will talk to you again real soon. For more Herds. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to turn down the noise of the news cycle. Don't spend too much time on things that don't matter. Get to the things that do matter. Talk to knowledgeable guests and try our best to discern these crazy times we live in as we finish off the year of our Lord 2022. Normally, on this program, what we do is we cover our politics and our culture and whatever's going on in the headlines. We have our guests. And then at the end of the show, if we have time, I usually like to try to do a feel-good story or something that uplifts people, people helping each other. We do a lot of charity stories in that segment. I'm going to start with one, though, today because we're going into uh, the Thanksgiving week next week. And I just want to take a second to put some things in perspective. Let's go out to Texas. I, I know politics will be there. It's not going anywhere. We'll talk about that some other time. Let's go to Lamar County, Texas real quick. This is CBS 7. Uh, this came from our good friend Keith Conrad, who has an excellent list every night called uh, New Side Quest. You should subscribe to that. I stole this from his list. A Texas man didn't waste any time after finding an engagement ring that was lost after a tornado went through their neighborhood. Dakota Hudson said he hid the ring in the closet of the house but couldn't find it after the tornado destroyed the home. However, everything changed on Tuesday. This is from November the 10th. Uh, KXII reported that Hudson found the missing ring with a little help while going through debris at the home site, and popped the question to his girlfriend, Lauren Patterson, right there on the spot. According to Hudson, the Paris Junior College softball team helped him in the search and refused to leave without finding the ring. When you tell 20 girls someone is going to get engaged if they find a ring, by God, they're going to find it, he said. The group said the ring was found about seven yards from the closet's location. It was torn from its box and buried at about two inches underground. It was just digging through the mud in a particular spot, and I felt a little piece of metal circle, said Kate Rainey, a volunteer who helped in the search. I didn't believe it when I found it. The couple said they are grateful to have one another through such a challenging times. Finally, if you have a moment to smile, and it was a real smile, Patterson said. It was a very surreal moment. I couldn't have asked for a better proposal. The group also found the couple's wedding band about three feet from the engagement ring. The couple said they are now planning a wedding after they pick up from the tornado. We'll link to that story. Why are we opening with that? Well, we just spent 
you know, the better part of two weeks and most of the year, frankly, talking about midterm elections and Congress changing hands and new leadership roles for the people in Congress and what it means for 2024 and the presidential election. And you know what, though? We lose perspective if that's all we talk about. That's why we do food group on Twitter, not just politics. That's why we do feel good segments and we cover stories. That's why we talk to correspondents from around the world in this program about stories that give us perspective that there's a wider world outside of just the media bubble that we can sometimes make for ourselves. Here's the story for Thanksgiving. One of my pet peeves is always people skip over Thanksgiving. They go from Halloween straight into Christmas. Drives me nuts. No Christmas music until the day of Thanksgiving. Now, that afternoon, as soon as you do Thanksgiving dinner, let's go crazy. It's all 24-7 Christmas. Thanksgiving's important, not the holiday. The state of mind Thanksgiving. Are we thankful for what we got? We get really wrapped up in yelling at Washington or doom scrolling on our social media. Think about the simpleness of picking through the rubble of your home and finding a moment of joy because you can spend the rest of your life with somebody you love, like these folks finding that engagement ring. Oh, yeah, they could get married without the ring. It's a little bit of symbolism. We need symbols. We need little touchstones in our lives of the good stuff. And that's why I wanted to start today's program with that. We're going to have plenty of politics. We're going to have some really ugly politics going forward. There's some really ugly stuff going in the world, like the war in Ukraine. We're going to have a World Cup that Qatar bought, and they left the money on the dresser of FIFA to pay and paper over their human rights violations, slave labor. They built all those shiny uh, stadiums with. There's a lot of really bad stuff going in the world. Let's make sure our families, our communities, our loved ones, our households, those really important stuff are somewhere way up on the list ahead of politics and news filters and things like that, because they really matter. Uh, I know I'm going to take a little time over the next couple of weeks. There'll be a couple of days I don't do this show because I'm going to do a little traveling. I'll spend some time with my family. Um, we're going to have the holidays, of course. So we'll take some time off for that. And it's very personal for me this holiday season. I'm going to make a point to make sure to enjoy it, because as soon as we're done with it come January, I'm going to be doing more surgery. And we're not sure how those sorts of things turn out. I learned that the hard way. That's how I'm doing this in the first place. Back in 2016, I had to have major surgery that we thought was going to be not that bad, wound up being months and months in the hospital and life changing. Now, that also opened doors of opportunity. I started writing and got to do this show. So you never know how these things go. I want to start today's program with Thanksgiving, not the holiday, the mindset, because we can lose it in Team Red versus Team Blue. We can lose it in the battle of ideologies. We can lose it in the culture war. We can lose it in the doom and gloom of, oh, the country's going to hell in a handbasket if I don't do X, Y, and Z right now, right this second. That's almost never true. You know what you can do right now? Spend a little more time with your family and loved ones. Do something real small for your community. Have you picked up the check in a restaurant for the person sitting at a table or two down with some kids that might need a little help? Do that. I guarantee you make you feel good. Pick up a little trash, maybe prune up the neighborhood, see something laying around. Maybe help an old lady cross the street. I know it's hokey. It's silly. It doesn't trend. It's not viral. It's not SEO sensitive. That's the good stuff in life. Your family, your community, way more important than politics. Because if our politics aren't towards making those moments more accessible for everybody and letting the next generation have them, letting them have freedom, letting them thrive and grow, your politics aren't properly aligned. So a little Thanksgiving to start this program. Politics will wait. We'll do those some other time. We just did them for weeks on end. We got an archive of 300-some shows just full of them. We're going to your Thanksgiving today. 
and over the weekend. We'll get back to the politics on the next Herd Tell. And more Herd Tell will continue right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. We love talking to our friend Luis Mendez. He is at the Mendez Movie Report. He does great stuff. Y'all like him. I've seen the numbers. You move numbers, my friend. People love talking about movies. It's a good break from the culture and politics. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. Uh, I got to tell you, you would think the midterms uh, weren't over with how many FYC stuff the studios are sending to my email and my inbox. It's nuts. I got a screener almost every night to go to. Yeah, you're down in Florida, too. So, you know, I, I think you better just buckle in, buddy. It's going to be a crossing of the streams down here for some time to come with uh, the potential of your governor maybe looking to move up and rank a little bit. I want to touch on something that we talked about the last time I had you on, and I got to thinking about it, and you mentioned a specific movie about it, and then I watched that movie, and then I really got to thinking about it. But you mentioned it. Romantic comedies. This used to be a staple of big box office releases from let's 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 narrow this down a little bit. Let's go late 80s. The kind of, you know, Harry Met Sally, Pretty Woman, that kind of era up through the modern era. That was a staple of and now we're going through a cycle of, oh, well, the rom-com's dead, but it's not really dead. It's just morphed to streaming. I find the romantic comedy, what's going on with it in movies right now, really fascinating and kind of indicative of what's going on with theaters versus streaming and all that, too. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious that the romantic comedy has kind of become something that a lot of folks seem to be more interested in watching at home. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily seen as much of an event as it may have been in the past. Uh, I mean, I remember back growing up in the 90s. I mean, they, they have romantic comedies with some huge, huge stars. And it was a big deal when those movies were coming out. So this thing would even be part of the summer uh, lineup. Uh, but these days, it, it's become very much something that is on streaming. I mean, even with a movie like Marry Me, the Jennifer Lopez, uh, Owen Wilson movie that came out much earlier this year, they went ahead and had it available on streaming as well. Um, at the same time, Universal went ahead and did that. The only... Uh, romantic comedy that I feel has been able to overcome that. The words have been two. There's The Lost City, though you can argue that's more of an adventure film. And then there's Ticket to Paradise, which uh, last time I was on your show, I said that I was uh, worried about that movie's box office, but it's actually done much better than I, uh, I and a lot of other people thought it would do. And I think it's because it's probably sort of the last gasp of two really big movie stars being able to sell a movie uh, in a day and age where movie star name doesn't necessarily sell movies like they used to. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Take It to Paradise. That's exactly the movie I was thinking of. I actually watched it. I watched it on streaming at home. Um, let's be honest, at this stage of their career, um, Julia Roberts and George Clooney, they played Julia Roberts and George Clooney in every movie <laughs> they're in. That's, that's the static. Uh, look, that's an earned privilege. So, you know, it is what it is, but that's an earned privilege, but that's what they play. I thought it was a good movie. Look, it wasn't earth-shattering. It was it was formulatic, but it was it was well made. There wasn't anything offensive in it. You didn't feel like 
got movies have gotten so bad on some like if i just don't feel like i wasted my time that's almost a win now watching a full movie right it was good i enjoyed it family enjoyed it it was a good movie um the younger stars really held their own on it you know i thought it was a right down the middle you know solid double romantic comedy but the way you phrased it it's really interesting let me pitch it to you this way we we have the long-running joke and meme of netflix and chill comedy comes from a place you know when something catches on like that it comes from a place of truth there's something to netflix and chill that's a culture shift and i think something like the romantic comedy it's just so tailor-made for streaming it really is so it's not that it's dead it just found a lot better market and when you talk about everything being niche marketing now hey cuddle up on the couch with your significant other for romantic comedy like that just that I think it just kind of more went home than anything else. Is that a fair way to put it? Well, that's extremely fair. I mean, if if anybody sits down and looks at the slate of Netflix, just Netflix, and, and there's a lot of other streaming services that have their own romantic comedies, but if you get on Netflix and you look at almost every single week, there's a new romance coming out, most of them romantic comedies. Uh, we're in Christmas movie season now, and uh, Netflix is coming out with... Uh, romantic comedy Christmas movies. They just came out with one uh, with Lindsay Lohan. Um, so I think that's extremely fair. I think that's exactly where the market went for the uh, romantic comedy. Uh, you know, uh, movies like Ticket to Paradise are able to do so well at the box office as romantic comedies. Um, I think it's become much more of a rarity I think if you do see romantic comedies make real big money at the box office next time, they're probably going to be have to, for the lack of a better word, there's going to have to be a little bit of a gimmick to them to get people to really show up at the box office and feel like they have to come to the theater to see this. Because otherwise, they're just going to, they're so, uh, they're so, uh, you know, they're, they're just used to seeing it at home. Yeah, and let's talk about the business part of this for a second. Luis Mendez joining us. He's our movie expert. Certified critic now. He's he's legit. Something really interesting happened a couple of years ago. And again, this is something that's joked about on social media, but there's a real business and culture shift underneath it. One thing with romantic comedies is, and we joke about it, Hallmark has absolutely printed money making very inexpensive to make, very formulaic. And then they figured out like, oh, we can do holiday themes. We can make 30 Christmas movies every Christmas. And then we can make a Thanksgiving one. Then we can make, I don't know if they do an Easter one or whatever, but you just make these holiday movies that are just built for rom-coms. You can go back in time. Christmas for Connecticut. How many times have they remade that over the years? You know, that, that, that works. It works every time you try it. They've just figured out a new way to do it. You wouldn't think of Netflix and Amazon as chasing Hallmark Channel but that's exactly what happened because now all of a sudden Netflix is pumping out all these rom-coms and Christmas. Stand they looked at that and went, ah, that money train ain't gone too far. We can't jump on it yet. That's a very interesting development because you don't think of Hallmark leading the train on that, but they really did in a way. Oh, yeah. I, I, I actually follow a movie critic that has like a, their own podcast where they follow all the Hallmark movies. Uh, so it's always interesting to see the what kind of movies they're reviewing because, you know, I don't get to keep up with Hallmark. I got too many movies to watch as is, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, and it's funny because I remember for a while there, I actually referred to it in my reviews as, oh, Netflix is doing sort of these, uh, this feels sort of like a Hallmark movie. And it got to the point that I was like, well, Netflix is coming out with these so much that 
they've kind of become their own thing. The, you know, Netflix romance, Netflix Christmas movies. And they've even made kind of franchises off of it. When you see some of these Christmas uh, movies that have like two, three uh, sequels. Uh, so, I mean, and I think the money is there because it's just easier to get to the market at home. It's like, okay, you we're not asking you to go to the inconvenience of going to the theater and it's like, just stay at home, watch this uh, feel-good stuff. And you know what? Uh, in some uh, aspects, you can even binge these movies. Uh, so I think it's just about nailing the marketplace. And I, I do think that Hallmark uh, probably got ahead on all these guys about this. And the streaming services just realized that well, uh, this is a real opportunity for us. I, one of the reasons I always enjoy talking movies with you is because you understand the business side of it. Talk to that, though, because we see, man, we've seen a couple of them this year. Big budget movies that fail. You're talking about people getting fired. You're talking about studio. There's been like one bad movie can shut down a whole studio like that, ha especially now where the environment is so good. The reason those movies make money, even though they're not the big box office gaudy numbers, is they know exactly how much it's going to cost to produce them. They know exactly how much it's going the time frame to put them out. Talk about the business into that of going, oh, like, oh, this has a six week shoot schedule or whatever it is. It's going to have a 90 day production run and then we're going to put it out. It's going to make X money because it costs us X money. Like this, they've got this down to a science. And any business, when you can replicate success like that, that's how you make money. That's the business side of this people don't talk about. Well, it is funny because if you think about it, cheaper movies are kind of, in, as long as you, it's the uh, genres that people are, are eating up, like romantic comedies or uh, Christmas movies, or even something dramatically different like the horror films that come out. If you have a cheap budget, if you can get the movie done quickly, uh, and it doesn't really take all that much to get the profit off of it. If if you look at what small movies are struggling to get profits, those tend to be like more art drop art house dramas, um, and, and that's understandable because dramas can be a bit of a hard sell, um, especially in this day and age when a lot of folks have gotten more uh, comfortable with uh, picking and choosing their adult dramas, but. Uh, if you could get that that sort of magic recipe where you know how much it's going to cost you know you can shoot it quickly and you don't really get got to get like avengers numbers to get people you know people to show up and make profit off of it i mean it's understandable why they would make these i mean and again you see it not just with the christmas movies but with horror movies because the horror movies are not uh expensive to make and they easily got a crowd from all the teenagers that come see them that's automatic right there so that they can easily make a profit off of those movies uh so it's understandable that being said the studios are still very very reliant these days on those huge blockbusters because i mean when you look at the budgets for some of these movies i mean it's ridiculous uh hundreds of millions of dollars. That's before accounting hundreds of millions of dollars towards marketing, shooting for billion dollar box office. Uh, so it is kind of interesting how in one sense, they can make such easy uh, profit with the small movies, but they really do gotta keep the studio running with these huge, massive uh, blockbusters.
Yeah, it's funny because almost every year when you look at the the most gross or box office receipt list, every year there seems like there's a horror movie that surprises everybody. Almost every year there's one horror movie that all of a sudden made a bunch of money. Um, your latest review, since you're talking horror that you did Mendez movie report, it's on Substack. Make sure you subscribe. He does great work. Also writes at ordinary dash times.com for us. You reviewed bones and all this has been a little bit of a divisive film. It sure seems like people either think it's brilliant or terrible one or the other and terrible might be the wrong word, but it's very jarring. Uh, let me put it that way. Again, this is a plot heavy movie, so you don't want to give it away too much, but this has got a lot of people talking, and here you go again. Another horror movie, a little bit of creative to it, stays in the genre. It seems like kind of the perfect formula for those sleeper hits you're talking about. Go ahead and give people the rundown on Bones and All. Yeah, so Bones and All is a brand new movie from the same director who actually did uh, Call Me By Your Name, which was a big uh, Best Picture contender a couple years back. Uh, it's interesting. It's, it's based on a novel. It's basically a cannibal love story. So it's, it's a mixing of horror and romance. Um, it's it's a movie that I would tell folks that if you have a weak stomach, you want to stay away from this movie. Uh, I'm very happy that my wife did not come with me to my screening because she is does not like gore. And this movie has plenty of gore. And yet it also somehow has these quiet character moments at the same time. Uh, I personally thought the movie was okay. I didn't love it as much as other folks. I, I know some movie critics who are saying it might be their favorite movie of the year. Um, it, for me, though, it, it's a movie that I got a little too grim for me at times. But uh, it is. But I, I do wonder if it could be a, a big hit. I, I believe it should hit wide during Thanksgiving week. Uh, but it is definitely a, mi a marriage, uh, no pun intended, between horror and romance. And, but it is a very gory movie. If anybody out there is interested in checking it out, just to let you know, this is a cannibal love story. And they do not hold back on the fact that these are cannibals. What a fun concept. And not the political ones that we've been dealing with for the last two weeks since the midterms either. Luis Mendez, our good movie buddy, joining us. As we're recording this, uh, we got to mention it since we're talking movies. Martin Scorsese's 80th birthday is today as we record this. This will be up the next day, obviously. Um, whatever you think of all his movies, whatever pantheon of directors, he's up there somewhere on everybody's list. That's a serious list. Give me a thumbnail on Scorsese at 80. He's obviously not done. He's still working. I think he's got three projects going right now. What's his legacy? Because, you know, you got the mobster movie stuff. I actually love the fact that just every eight, nine years, he does a documentary just for the hell of it. I always kind of admired that about his career going all the way back. What What do you take away from somebody like that that we still have working he kind of got caught up in the streaming versus, you know, since we're talking about the streaming versus theater thing, and then he kind of gave into it because somebody wrote him a check that was nice enough that he's like, okay, I can get over my scruples on this. But Martin Scorsese, just some thoughts on the great man's birthday. 
Yeah, okay, so Scorsese is without a shadow down extremely important in modern uh, cinema, especially for, for film buffs like me who want to check out the very old 1910s uh, silent films because he has been very, very important in making sure that those movies are restored, found, protected. I, I don't know how many people out there are understand how much work he's put into that kind of restoration. And the reason that I can go back and visit these extremely early days of movies is thanks to Scorsese. And as a director, he has an incredible legacy because he's had so many movies that have become, it not just movies that are gonna show up in the 1001 movies of Watch Before You Die books and stuff like that, but movies that are mainstream classic hits. Uh, you know, for, personally, my I would say probably my favorite of his old movies, and this might be a little bit of a boring pick, but it's Goodfellas. Uh, I really, really adore that movie. Uh, he's also done some family stuff. He did Hugo a couple years ago. Uh, he really is important, and he's still working. I mean, he's got a movie called Killers of the Flower Moon that I know is going to be an Oscar contender. Uh, we thought we were going to get it get this year, but it looks like we're going to be getting it next year instead. Uh, he is very pivotal. Now, I do, I, I, I do limit my praise for the man. There are a lot of people in the film world who absolutely praise him and see him as a god. Guillermo del Toro, uh, a couple weeks ago, made a comment that he would give up years of his life to give more years to Scorsese and stuff like that. He is a saint to a lot of folks, but I do have some issues with him regarding some of his comments of late where it sort of feels like he's kind of fighting a lot of change, uh, particularly what I think is quite frankly kind of snobbish comments about some genre films of late. But you cannot overstate how important he's been to uh, cinema, not just through his work, not through the stuff he's just coming out, but also the fact that he is a big reason why we can go back and watch a lot of movies from the 1910s and 1920s that would have otherwise maybe been lost. Yeah, one of these days we should do a long-form pod on the various fires, like the 37 Fox Fire and, uh, of course, the 2008 Universal Fire. Like, how much stuff has been lost that we will never have again? That people don't even realize we lost from things like fire and degradation and things yeah like I, that. I mean I, I think a lot of folks don't realize that the first ever movie to win best picture wings we thought we lost it for a while and then thankfully i think it was in the 70s a copy was found in a, a paris museum like in, in one of their archives uh i mean and and th those kind of miraculous uh discoveries are still happening to this day so uh if anybody out there if you if you've got some old movies uh reels and stuff and check your archives and stuff because you never know if it's a lost movie the the lost movie that i personally would love for us to find is uh london at midnight which is a uh lon cheney film uh we've got sort of a rundown of what happens in the movie but we don't got the movie itself that's like the golden that's really like the golden goose that we need for the lost films yeah and i'm not the cinephile that you are but um 
my favorite early one, Metropolis, which has a lot of iconic imagery that's been stolen. They they don't even know how much of it we actually have. That's how much of it's lost. They think we might have like 30 or 40% of it. They found a bunch of it about 10 years ago and restored some of it. But there's large chunks of that movie we don't have. It. Go go, just watch the clips of it. The visuals on that, when you consider when it was made, is just amazing. Well, yeah, people should watch that movie because it's, it's actually my second favorite uh, from that year. It is a, a really darn good movie. And it's just a Fritz Lang is probably my favorite silence film director. Uh, he just absolutely amazing the stuff that he did back then. I would I would really wonder how he he probably would have gone crazy in this day and age with visual effects and the way that language would just go big. He probably would have gone nuts if he were around today. Some of them people didn't need CGI. It would have been bad for everybody involved. Uh, Luis Mendez. All right, buddy, real quick before we let you go. Uh, we're getting down to the end of the year. Usually, this you know, people unleash a couple blockbusters right around Thanksgiving and Christmas. This year feels a little slower than maybe normal, but give people a couple things over the holidays. People like to take in movies with their families. Give folks a couple things to look for as we round out the year of our Lord 2022. Well, Black Panther Wakanda Forever is out there. It's been huge. Uh, if folks haven't checked it out, I thought it was a pretty decent movie. I didn't like really really like it as much as the first movie but it's got a very beautiful uh tribute to chadwick boseman in there which i, I it's really impressive the way they were able to uh uh bounce back after taking that huge loss uh we do have the avatar sequel coming out no avatars a little bit divisive for some folks there's a lot of debate around it uh i'm keeping an eye on it because it may be as big of an awards player as the last movie but it's honestly a very big mystery as to what that's going to do how audiences are going to react to it. Uh, we also got The Fablements, which should be out by Thanksgiving time. I should hopefully be seeing it on Monday as of this recording. Uh, it is the newest Steven Spielberg movie. It may be the front runner to win Best Picture. And a movie that will be coming out should be wide by about Christmas week. And if you really liked Wolf of Wall Street, you may want to give this movie a try. Babylon. It is the next Damien Chazelle movie. It is probably going to be a big contender at the Oscars. And it is a movie that is basically based on the 1920s and that transition from silent to talkies, uh, but with a, this audacious sort of sex and drugs sort of dark comedic look to it. So if you were into Wolf of Wall Street, I think folks might want to check that out. I can't wait to check out the movie myself uh, because it, it sounds like a lot of stuff that's right up my alley. Hey, Downton Abbey's last movie already covered transitioning to talkies. I guess we just needed to sex it up a little bit more. I'm sorry. I love Downton Abbey. I apologize for nothing. Hey, 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 we got Singing in the Rain, too. Singing in the Rain classic that covers that time period also. We we joke about it before, but Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood. Yes. Like, it's just a fact. So, Lewis Mendes. We got plenty of them. Fablements, Empire Light, Babylon. We got yeah, plenty you, of them. If you want an Oscar, make a movie about making a movie or a musical about making a movie, and you will win an Oscar. That's the trick to it. Uh, Lewis uh, Mendez, our movie guy, we're going to have you on more and more because uh, one is it's fun to talk about something other than politics. Two is you're really, really good at it. So, let folks know where they can keep up with you your writings, your other things going on, my friend, until we get you back on Hertel again. Well, just basically check out my Substack, MendesMovieReport.Substack.com. You do not have to pay anything like some of these other Substacks. They're 100% free. Uh, and if you want to find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or if you've got a letterbox, Bendis Movie RPT. 
Uh, that's where I'm available. If you want to check out any of my thoughts on any movies, that's basically where you can find me. Yeah, you do great work, sir. We'll talk Godzilla next time. I see you wearing your Godzilla <laughs> shirt, trying to bait me into talking about because there's been some big news in Godzilla it's world. Last few weeks. Next year, we are we are going to get very, very uh, next year. We're going to be very spoiled as Godzilla fanboys. We're going to get yeah. two Godzilla movies next year. Yeah, that news just came out. So I knew you were going to bait me into trying to talk to <laughs> it. But no, that will not work. We will do it next time. Luis Mendez, you're the best, buddy. Thank you, sir. No problem. Thanks. Yes, sir. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we love having new folks on it. We love covering new topics because guess what happens when you cover a new topic? You find kind of the same old stories down underneath there. Universal things because people are people everywhere. Let's go down under. Been a little while since we had an Australian correspondent. We got one today. Mark Burgess, another Young Voices contributor. He's down in Melbourne. How are you, my friend? Uh, good morning to you. Evening my time. How are you? Yes. Uh, good morning and good evening, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, I'm yes. good. I'm good. How are you? Uh, thrilled to have you. Uh, he's down in Melbourne, also went to school in Melbourne. And frankly, he's going to have to just kind of walk us through this because I don't know a lot about this one either. But we have we have a little bit of posing here, I think is a fair way to term it. We have a little bit of corruption, I think we could call it. And it's all centered around sports. But here's the problem. I don't know how familiar Americans are with netball. So you're going to have to start with explaining what netball is. They know what soccer is. They know what football is. They know Australian rules. Football is actually decently popular in America. We always find that interesting around Grand National time. They don't know about this one, though. So you're going to have to explain it to us, my friend. Yeah, yeah. No worries, Andrew. Um, I guess netball, for, for no one that's ever seen it before, it's sort of a different form of basketball in a lot of ways. I guess the major difference being that when you get the ball, uh, you're not allowed to, you can't actually dribble. So as soon as somebody passes you the ball, you actually have to stand still and then pass it off to someone. But more or less, and there's only, it's one point for a score and there's no, there's no three points or anything like that. It's certainly, in terms of its popularity, there are mixed uh, university netball teams, but professionally, it's really only uh, a, a women's sport that's quite um, popular. So it, it's an interesting instance, this um, kind of government overreach of, of sponsoring this team. Um, but I would encourage, I think, for anyone that's not familiar with netball, just look up on YouTube. Um, that's probably the best way to to check it out. And check out Australian Rules if you've never uh, seen it before as well. Yeah, somewhere John Gattuso, my middle school basketball coach, is going, that's how I taught him basketball. He catch the ball, don't dribble, just stand there and pass. He, <laughs> his big thing was no more than one or two dribbles and pass. He wasn't into dribbling, mostly because I was really bad at it. <laughs> Anywho, uh, here's the problem. So we have this professional netball team. Long story short, they lose their sponsorship. The background here is, though, we're getting ready to have an election in Victoria, which is a state in Australia. And a politician decides to get involved. Pick it up there because that's where the kind of the trouble starts and where everybody starts paying attention to the story. And it goes from just being a, oh, you lost a sponsorship to a team to the political realm. And then all the streams start crossing in a hurry. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Andrew. And I'll just backtrack really quickly just because the, the decision to drop the sponsor was actually the netball team because uh, Gina Reinhardt is the uh, chairman of Hancock Prospecting, which is an iron ore company, and her father, Lang Hancock, he made some sort of unsavoury uh, comments 38 years ago um, and so about Indigenous Australians. One of the Indigenous Australian players actually uh, said, I'm not comfortable wearing this logo uh, when I'm playing for Netball Australia. And so all of the other players rallied around her. The trouble was uh, Gina Reinhardt had given them a $15 million contract. And so it's kind of, it's not really feasible to have a sponsor and you're not going to wear their logo. So in the end, they dropped they dropped the sponsor, even though they were $7 million in debt. And this is where Daniel Andrews from uh, the Victorian Premier swoops in. And it's worth noting, it's not as though it's not as though there weren't other people, including there were actually other Australian states, but just on principle, I don't think there should be governments coming in here to be the sponsor for a sporting team because there were private institutions that were willing to to support Netball Australia. But Andrews has just come in here uh, and so he's he's just, he's a master politician, uh, a bit of a Machiavellian, if you will, Daniel Andrews. And I was kind of thinking initially, I'm not really sure why this is going to antagonise a lot of people, but I think the analysis was correct in that it's um, it really plays into the inner city, uh, often Greens swinging voters. He's kind of appealed to them with this decision to sponsor netball australia and it the background's important that the previous sponsor was an iron ore company because it kind of pits the more progressive left you know very much the climate change renewable energy agenda against an old school uh australian mining company so uh, all of that background information is um is really relevant i guess so it's it's not only it's not only just filling uh, the sponsorship void, but it's also just a bit of a in-your-face to uh, Gina Reinhardt as well, I guess. Mark Burgess joining us from Australia. I can be sympathetic to uh, <laughs> mining companies that do wrong. Look, I'm from West Virginia. We got some flattened off hilltops that we can talk about sometime. Look, mining companies need to be reined in. I'm all fine with that. They need to pay for their destruction. I'm sympathetic to such things. Where this gets bad, though, and you already touched on it, when you start talking about government money going to a private entity, especially when it's something like a sports team, especially when it's something during an election year, it just screams untoward, doesn't it? Because it, it becomes so obviously a po you already mentioned it. Like, look, this is this is a classic hot button political debate. You have the mining company, you have, you know, the progressive wings. This this just all fits so so neatly that this is kind of a story. It just pushes so many buttons at once. Then you get, you know, a schemer kind of a politician like Andrews, and they can just drop the money in it. It just feels icky to me. Oh, is absolutely. that a fair way to say it? Oh, absolutely, Andrew. And it's um it is inherently, in and of itself, as an isolated incident, I would say it is icky. Uh, I think it's it is inappropriate, but not only not only just as an isolated incident, but the backdrop of Victoria's economy. Now, bearing in mind Victoria, uh, the city of Melbourne was the longest longest lockdown in COVID in the Western world. Absolutely, has obliterated the economy here. So, we I, I say in the article. Uh, Victoria is on track, our debt is on track to exceed that of New South Wales, Queensland and Tasmania combined. 
and for perspective, New South Wales has a larger state economy than Victoria. So this is um, really kind of monstrous levels of debt. So it's kind of this backdrop of they really should be tightening up the budget and exercising some fiscal discipline. So I think this was the real kick in the guts for a lot of Victorians is that in the circumstances of, of being in this much debt, to then go and somehow pull out a lazy 15 million, when I say pull out, of course, it's it's taxpayers' money to sponsor a national Australian netball team. It's just ridiculous. And it's insulting, to be honest, because the, the argument that Andrew's tried to use to justify it was that it's going to contribute to the Victorian economy, which is just nonsense. Like it, it's just, it, it is just a, a non-argument to to say that. So it's, uh, yeah. And as you said, Andrew, it doesn't, it doesn't smell right. I guess it's probably a bit of an instance of pork barreling, but it's, yeah, it's remarkable. He, he just, he gets away with it. Yeah. Mark Burge is down in Australia joining us. You know, we say on our program all the time, things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. You just mentioned, you know, Melbourne, Sydney, the other major cities in Australia. We talked to our friend Emily Dye back a couple of years ago when the lockdowns were severe, like where they're jerking joggers off the streets, all this kind of mess. You know, yeah. you could yeah, only go to the store for a certain time. Yeah, yeah, we had her on and talked about all this. One of the highest rated episodes we did that year. People couldn't believe it because we think of Australia as being this open place. You touched on an interesting strand here. You said this is predominantly a woman's sport on the professional level. And it's kind of almost doubly insulting in a way because, and you touched on it, women were very acutely affected during those lockdowns. That's right. Um, The pandemic response and what it entails. So to make a pose out of a women's sport on top of it, taking the background, taking the history, taking everything else that goes on, that feels like an extra layer of cynicism added to this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I guess it's almost probably um, almost trying to make amends, perhaps, for the the lockdowns. Although it is remarkable, Andrew, we've, you would think that given given everything that Emily kind of went through, and Emily was up in uh, in Sydney, in New South Wales, and they, they had quite a long lockdown as well. Uh, Victoria, Victoria's, unfortunately, was even longer. But what's remarkable is uh, Daniel Andrews was the premier all the way through Melbourne uh, being in lockdown. And it is it is kind of scary that uh, you would think that a politician in those circumstances wouldn't be re-elected that had these really kind of draconian measures, uh, you know, n- not only affecting women, but um, everyone ultimately. And it is, I guess... The only explanation that I have is that they've just kind of whipped up sort of hysteria and fear into into the kind of populace, and it's um, yeah, it, it's it is pretty pretty crazy times.
Mark Burgess joining us down in Australia. You just mentioned it. You know, we're just sitting and talking about it. We can highlight it. This has obviously been a viral story that's gotten a lot of press, but this is going to be up to the voters of Victoria. The election is coming. Nutshell it for us, because obviously an American audience, the international audience doesn't know the ins and outs of Victorian politics. Give us a little bit of the lay of land. What do you expect? What are the voters expecting? Do the voters feel a need to hold people accountable or are they just kind of moving on? What's the lay of the land there electorally right now? Well, the lay of the land, it's its really strange, to be honest, Andrew. Um, unfortunately, the Victorian opposition, so the two main parties in Australia is the Labor Party and the Liberal Party, uh, the Liberal Party being traditional, traditionally centre-right and Labor being centre-left. It remarkably is looking as though Daniel Andrews of the Labor Party, uh, by the way, he's from the socialist socialist left of the Labor Party, will be will be re-elected and that's despite Victoria uh, being Australia's debt capital, you know, a projected $167.5 billion debt by 2026, scandal after scandal. He's been investigated four times by our uh, anti-corruption commission here in Victoria and has has managed to, to get off scot-free each time. But in terms of the lay of the land, it is looking as though Labor will be re-elected. So it is quite remarkable given given the circumstances of the and the probably a, a pretty interesting stat, Andrew, is that Victoria will have been a Labor government if if Andrews is re-elected, will have been a Labor government twenty three out of the last twenty seven years if if he's re-elected and sees out his next term. So we're more or less moving towards a one party state. Andrews was elected in in twenty fourteen, but yeah, look, unfortunately, it's a combination of a masterful politician in Andrews. And also just a really weak opposition. And I would say the Liberal Party in Victoria, rather than actually standing up for things on principle, they've been kind of shifting further and further to the left a little bit. So Victoria is possibly the most left-wing state, most progressive state in Australia. And there's really no competition for it's really unfortunate because I think a lot of people don't know who to vote for because there's just not. The alternative isn't that much better. Like on principle, I think that a lot of people just won't vote for Daniel Andrews. And now we also have, um, so we've got a couple of minor parties, the Greens, who are who focus pretty much on climate change and so on. But the reality of the situation is like they would drive the economy into the ground if they were ever uh, in a majority. Uh, and then we also have these sort of... Um, teal independence and they're all probably going to preference the labor party so i think my my prediction is probably it'll be labor will be re-elected it might be uh, in a minority government this time around for the liberal party to win back government here they have to win 18 seats which is huge uh so even if they had their had their stuff together uh which i don't think they do then it would be a massive task but considering you know that they're just um they're sort of neither here nor there and they were sort of missing in that they didn't really hold the government to account i guess that's been one of the most depressing things about living in melbourne uh and victoria is that while all of these draconian measures had been going on there was no you'd think that it's um a great opportunity for the opposition to come in and really stand out but but they were just kind of uh, missing in action, I guess, for want of a better term. Yeah, we've got some places in America in our midterms like that where you got single party rule going on. 
And then on the other hand, you know, we've been talking about it for a couple of years now, the COVID stuff. Everybody told you who they were, what they were and what they're about. And it's amazing to me that some people don't want to believe what we got told and act like nothing happened. But it sure That's seems right. like it's happened and it seems to be universal. We just talked to our UK friends. We talk about our overseas friends. We talk to our American friends. It seems to be universal. People just move on and never learn the lesson. It's a sad thing. Mark Burgess down in Australia. Love the chat, man. Let's do this again soon. Until we get you back on the program, though, let people know where they can find you. We're going to link to his piece and some background information if you want to know more about these topics in the show notes. But let folks know where they can follow and keep up with you until they see you again on Herd Tell, my friend. Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. Um, well, primarily, just I do need to create a Twitter account, but um, you can you can add me on LinkedIn and keep following me in the Spectator Australia. Those are the two main places. And I might actually ask, Andrew, I'm curious because my perception, I don't know if this was like the international perception of Australians prior to, to COVID happening, but my perception was that Australians kind of had this larrikin attitude of, uh, you know, giving a bit of a one of these to authority. But the strange thing from COVID has seemed to be that Australians have proven to be a very kind of compliant people in terms of uh, with, with all the government um, restrictions and so on. There hasn't been much pushback. Has that surprised uh, a lot of Americans in, in your... It, yeah, it depends on who you talk to because we, you know, of course, we have a very diverse country and a diverse media. Mm -hmm. It depends on who you talk to. I don't know if rebellious is the right word. Australians have the reputation, of course, of being very friendly, very free loving, almost, you know, enjoying life, lots of that kind of stuff, you know, kind of the stereotypical, you know, you want to be outside, you want to have fun, you want to party a little bit, which is a little unfair, but there's some truth to that. Every Aussie I've ever met has always been very pleasant with me. I served with some Aussies in, in Iraq, actually. Uh, love those guys. They were fun. So that's kind of, so re rebellious might be a little strong. There, the thing in leftward media is that they like because it's a little bit more of a progressive country than ours in a lot of ways. So they they always enjoyed y'all. The right leaning media for the last few years, though, when when y'all did gun control and they did the mm -hmm. gun confiscation, that broke through with the right wing media. So the folks that followed that story from however long it was. I don't think they were surprised because and then they in their minds they put those two things together even though they're they're probably not a complete match that way. So the right leaning media they already had that perception from the gun grab thing because that's a major issue for the right side media in America. So it depends on who you talk to to be fair about. It. I think that's the best way I can break it down for you. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Oh, well, it was um yeah, really enjoyed the conversation, Andrew. And yeah. thanks very much for having me on. Definitely do it again. Mark Burge is down in Atlanta. Mark Burge is down <laughs> in Australia. Appreciate the time, sir. Thank you very much, Andrew. That'll do it for Herd Tell. Remember, we'd love to hear from you. Herd Tell Show on the gmail.com. If you want to send us an email, Herd Tell Show on the Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Always happy. This doesn't work if you're not listening. So wherever you and yours are, thank you so much for listening. Until we talk to you again on Herd Tell, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. We'll see you real soon. Right back here for more Herd Tell.
All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Somos la magia.